Athenite Fathers and Athenite Matters by St. Paisios of Mount Athos, published by the Holy Hesychasterion, Evangelist John the Theologian, Soroti, Thessaloniki, Greece. Prologue. Continuing our work with God's help on the translation into English of the books by St. Paisios the Athenite, we now offer our English-speaking Orthodox friends the third book, Athenite Fathers and Athenite Matters. It is, one might say, a small Eurantikon. It presents the lives or some particular circumstances in the lives of Athenite fathers who were vessels of divine grace and lived approximately in the period from 1840 to 1980. In the conclusion to the book, which is entitled The Return to God from Earth to Heaven, the author offers a distillation of his own experience and God's wisdom. Elder Paisios, as a novice, but also later on in his monastic life, was blessed in having been able to associate with many righteous fathers, athletes of Christ, in the garden of the Mother of God, Paravoli of the Panagia, or to hear others tell of them. He was deeply impressed by their holy simplicity, their unshakable, genuine, and unadulterated faith. He was moved by their philotema-filled struggle. He admired their self-denial unto death and their devotion to the ascetic ideal. He tasted and was sweetened by the honey of their virtues, and being animated by the same combative spirit, he imitated their godly achievements. He later undertook to record as much as his memory and heart had retained out of reverence and a sense of sacred duty towards the Holy Fathers, and also out of love for his fellow men, because every day he was painfully aware that logic rather than faith prevails in the spiritual life of people, both laity and monastics. The lives of the Athenite Fathers, as described in these pages, help us all to understand how much we have deviated from the genuine line of thought of the Fathers of the Church, and how we are to return so as to find the true meaning of our lives. We extend our warmest thanks to all those who have assisted us and labored to complete this translation. May the good Lord reward their generous-hearted efforts in the way He knows best. Through the prayers of our Panagia and our righteous Athenite Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy upon us. Amen. Introduction, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I am much troubled by my conscience for not having kept detailed notes about the virtuous fathers who had lived in those latter years, about whom I had learned from other devout elders when I was a novice monk, just as I am also troubled by my great negligence for not having retained, at least in my memory, all the divine events which those holy elders had experienced, and which they recounted to me, with great simplicity, in order to help me spiritually. The fathers of those days had great faith and simplicity. Although most of them were basically illiterate, they nevertheless received constant divine enlightenment because of their humility and fighting spirit. While in our own days knowledge has increased, unfortunately logic has shaken people's faith from its foundations and filled their souls with questions and misgivings. For this reason, it follows that we should be deprived of miracles because miracles are experienced and cannot be explained by logic. The terribly worldly spirit which prevails in modern man 
who has directed his every effort towards how to live better with greater ease and less exertion has also unfortunately affected most spiritual people who in turn attempt to become holy with less effort, but it can never happen because the saints gave blood and received the Spirit. While one rejoices now for the great shift towards the Holy Fathers and monasticism and admires the worthy young people who dedicate themselves with noble aspirations, at the same time he is pained because he sees all that good material not finding the appropriate spiritual leaven. Hence that spiritual dough does not rise and ends up like unleavened bread. In the old days, even only twenty years ago, simplicity still abounded in the Paravoli of the Panagia. The fragrance of that simplicity of the Athenite fathers drew devout people like bees and nourished them, and they in turn transmitted the spiritual blessing to others in order to benefit them. Wherever you went, you would hear the recounting of miracles and heavenly events, because the fathers considered them to be perfectly natural. Living in that spiritual atmosphere of grace, it therefore never occurred to you to doubt what you heard, because you yourself would have also seen some of what you had heard. Nor would it ever have occurred to you to make notes or retain in your memory those heavenly events for coming generations, because you would have thought that that patristic way of living would continue. How could you have known that in a few years' time most people would become deformed by too much education, since they are being taught in the spirit of atheism and not in the spirit of God, which can also sanctify formal education, and that faithlessness would reach such a point that miracles would be considered fairy tales from bygone days. Naturally, when a doctor is an atheist, regardless of how many tests he performs on a saint with his scientific equipment, x-rays and so on, he will not be able to discern the grace of God. However, if he also has a sense of the holy, he will see divine grace radiantly shining. In order to provide a more vivid picture of grace, and so that readers can better understand the patristic spirit that reigned a few years ago, I thought that it would be good to relate as examples some of the circumstances regarding the simple elders of that time. When I was a novice at the monastery of Esphigmenu, I was told by the devout elder Dorotheos that a wizened elder used to come to help at the monastery infirmary. He had such great simplicity that he thought that the Ascension, the feast which the monastery celebrates, was a great saint, like St. Barbara, and when he prayed with his Camboschini, he used to say, Saint of God, intercede for us. One day a sickly brother had arrived at the infirmary, and since there was not any food to strengthen his health available, the elder hurried down the steps leading to the cellar, stretched his hand out of a window overlooking the sea, and said, O oh, my saint Ascension, please give me a fish for the brother. And O oh, the miracle, a large fish leapt up into his hand. He took it quite naturally, as if nothing extraordinary had happened, and happily went off to prepare it so as to strengthen the brother. The same elder told me of another father, Pacomios, I think, who had gone to Kapsala to live in greater asceticism and had reached great spiritual heights. One day, one of the fathers of the monastery had put aside two fish and was cleaning them. He was going to see Father Pacomios and offered them to him as a blessing. 
As he was cleaning them, however, a raven suddenly snatched up one of the fish and took it to Father Pacomios in Kapsala, a distance of five and a half hours on foot. Father Pacomios had received information from God about the brother's visit, and just as he was wondering what to offer him, the raven dropped the fish near him. Later, when the brother came and heard about it, he also glorified God, who in our own times also feeds his people by means of a raven, just as he had fed the prophet Elijah. A few years ago at the monastery of Kutlamuzio, there lived an elder father, Charlambos, who was very simple but also very violent, not only in his spiritual duties, but also in his monastic tasks. He was eager about everything. Father Charlambos had done most of the chores because in the last few years, only a few fathers had remained in the monastery and they were elderly. He had also been assigned to the library, but was removed from that task because he would never lock the door. He used to say, let people read the books. It never even occurred to him that there are also people who steal books. He had such innocence and simplicity. Apart from his many monastic tasks, he even planted trees for future generations because he believed that the monastery of Kutlamuzio would once again be filled with monks. While his hands were were constantly at work for others, his mind and heart worked at his spiritual duties through the unceasing prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. For services, he always arrived first. He also directed one of the choirs which chant on either side of the church. Whenever the canonarch would go across to the other choir to intone to them, Father Charlambos would say the Jesus prayer very rapidly so as not to interrupt his unceasing prayer. And so he lived very hardworking and very spiritual without ever letting up. Unfortunately, a single episode of flu knocked him off his feet and the doctor told the fathers not to leave his side because his life would soon end. Father Charlambos heard him from under the blankets and answered, What are you talking about? I will not die, not until Pascha comes, so I can say Christ is risen. Indeed, about two months went by, and Holy Pascha came. He said Christ is risen, received Holy Communion, and then fell asleep in the Lord. The simple elder, so full of Philotimo, had truly become a child of God, and together with God, had arranged the date of his death. In the skeet of Iveron, Elder Nicholas of the Marchiani Brotherhood, while telling me about a father who also had childlike simplicity, recounted that once when their well had dried up, that particular father had lowered an icon of St. Nicholas into the dry shaft with the rope tied to its ring hanger and said, St. Nicholas, since you can do this, come up together with the water if you want me to light your vigil oil lamp. You see, so many people come, and we don't have some cold water to give them. And oh, the miracle, the water gradually began to rise, with the icon of the saint floating on the top until he was able to grasp it with his hands. He reverently kissed it and took it into the church. This happened some fifty years ago. In the same skeet, a little higher up from the Kalivi, I referred to before, there is the Kelly of the Holy Apostles. There are two brothers now, where two brothers now live. 
Elder Pacomios had also belonged to that brotherhood. One could clearly see the holiness depicted on his face. The elder was very simple and completely illiterate, but full of grace. When he went to the central church of the Skeet for the services on feast days, he never sat on a stasidi, but always remained standing and saying the Jesus prayer, even during all-night vigils. Whenever anyone asked him what point had been reached in the service, he would reply, The Psalters, the fathers are reading the Psalters. He called everything Psalters. He knew absolutely nothing about chanting apart from Christ is risen, which he chanted at Pascha. He was always willing to do the will of others without having any will of his own. No matter how many worries one may have had, he needed only to look at Father Pacomios and they would go away. Everyone loved him, even the snakes, which trusted him and did not slither off when they saw him. There were a lot of snakes in the area around the Kalivi, because there was water there. The other two fathers were very afraid of the snakes, but Father Pacomios would approach them with a smile, pick them up, and put them outside the fence. One day when he was hurrying to the Kalivi of the Marchiani Brotherhood, he came across a large snake in his path. He wrapped it around his waist like a belt so that he could finish what he had to do first and then put it outside their grounds. Father James took fright at the very sight of it, which made Father Pocomios wonder. He later told me, I don't know why they are afraid of snakes. That Father Andrew of ours is even afraid of scorpions. I just scoop them up in my hands from the walls and throw them outside the Kalivi. Now that my hands tremble so much with Parkinson's disease, I just drag the big snakes outside. I asked the elder, Why don't the snakes bite you, Father Pacomios? He answered, Somewhere on a piece of paper, Christ writes that if you have faith, you can pick up snakes and scorpions, and they will not harm you. The saintly elder fell asleep in the Lord on October 22, 1967, one year before Elder Tikhon passed away. I shall write later about him as well as about other righteous fathers who strove with Philotimo in the Paravoli of the Pangia and were purified with the aid of the Good Mother, the Pure Virgin. These commandos of our church had become soldiers of Christ, conquered their passions, exterminated the enemy, the devil, and were crowned by Christ with incorruptible crowns. I got to know many of them quite well, but I, unfortunately, have not imitated them, which is why I now feel that I am so far from them. I pray, however, with all my heart, that all who read about their godly exploits will imitate them and beg them to also pray for me, wretched Paisios. Amen. Father Tikhon Father Tikhon was born in Russia in Novaya Mikoloshka in 1884. His parents, Paul and Helen, were pious people, so it was only natural for the fruit of their union, Timothy, as he was called in the world, to inherit their reverence and love for God and want to devote himself to God from early childhood. His parents saw the great divine fervor of their child, but hesitated to give their blessing for him to enter a monastery because they saw that he was a strapping young man and very lively by nature. They wanted Timothy to mature in his thinking too, 
and then decide for himself. They did give him their blessing, however, to visit monasteries for a period of three years, from his seventeenth to his twentieth year. It was then that he made his great endless pilgrimage to the monasteries of Russia, passing through some two hundred of them. In the monasteries he went to, despite being weary and exhausted from walking, he would discreetly reject hospitality, both as a form of asceticism and to avoid burdening others. In one of the provinces, though, he had been sorely tried because the people who lived there ate rye bread. Since Timothy ate nothing but regular bread, and rye bread usually has a horrid smell and is like mud, he was unable to eat it. So the young man became totally enervated. He went to the baker whom he had asked before to ask again for some white bread, thinking he would have kept some decent bread for himself. As soon as the baker saw Timothy in the distance, he told him to go away. Sad and exhausted as the young man was, he found a quiet spot, and with all his childlike simplicity, he prayed to the Panagia, My Panagia, I want you to help me because I will die on the way before I become a monk. I can't eat this bread. He had hardly finished his prayer when suddenly a maiden with a radiant face appeared to him. She gave him a loaf of white bread and disappeared at once. Timothy was utterly astonished. He could not explain what had happened. Various thoughts occurred to him. One was that perhaps the baker's daughter had overheard him, taken pity, and told her father to give him some decent bread. The young man got up again and went to thank him. But the baker thought that Timothy was making fun of him and swore angrily at him. Go on, get out of here. I haven't got a wife or a daughter either. After Timothy had eaten of that blessed bread and was revived, spiritually as well, he continued his pilgrimage to the other monasteries. However, the inexplicable event kept going around and around in his mind, and he was baffled by it for quite a long time. Later, when a monk gave him a book of Russian wonder-working icons of the Panagia, and he saw the Panagia of the Kremlin, his heart leapt with pious joy and his eyes filled with tears of gratitude, and he said, This Panagia is the one who gave me that white bread. From then on, he always felt the Panagia very close to him as a child does his mother. After visiting the monasteries of his homeland, he made a pilgrimage to the God-trodden mountain, Mount Sinai, remaining there for two months before going on to the Holy Land, where he lived for a time as an ascetic beyond the Jordan River. Although the Holy Land was helpful to him, he was unable to find peace and quiet due to the disquieting worldly spirit of our times, which with its so-called civilized nature has unfortunately destroyed even the holy desert places which calm and sanctify souls so he was forced to leave for the holy mountain. The tempter, the devil, with his long years of experience, seeing that this pious young man would progress greatly in the spiritual life and help many souls to their salvation, set about to ruin him. When Timothy had returned from the Jordan desert to Jerusalem, in order to make arrangements and then venerate the most holy sepulcher for the last time and say farewell to his friends, 
the devil used two ungodly women, Russians like himself, as his instruments. They invited him to their house on the pretext of giving him names to commemorate on the holy mountain. Timothy, who was guileless and had only good thoughts, believed them and went. When they locked him in the house and fell upon him with immoral inclinations, he was bewildered. He blushed and gave one push to them and another push to the door, fleeing from the talons of those hawks like a modern-day Joseph and kept himself pure. He came afterwards like the pure flower he was, planted himself in the paravoli of the Panagia, flourished and gave off the sweet fragrance of his virtues, as we shall see below. His first place of repentance was at the Kelly of Borazeri, where he lived for five years. Since he could not find peacefulness there due to the many Russian pilgrims, he received a blessing and went to Karulia, where he lived as an ascetic for 15 years. The entire time he was at Karulia, he spent in fierce struggles. His handiwork was to make great and small prostrations, as well as to study and say the Jesus prayer. He borrowed books from the monasteries, from which he also received as a blessing rusks, dried bread from leftover broken pieces, given to him by monks, for whom in return he would pray with his combuschini. And so he struggled with Philotimo to become an angel inwardly as well, and not merely outwardly by wearing the angelic habit. After Karulia, he moved to Kapsala, at the southernmost tip of Athos, above Kaliagra, to a keli belonging to the monastery of Stavronikita, where he looked after an ailing old monk. After the elder died and since he had received his blessing, he stayed on in the Kalivi alone. From then on, he not only persisted in his spiritual struggles, but increased them. It was only to be expected that he would receive the grace of God in abundance, since he struggled with Philotimo and great humbleness. Divine grace then revealed him to people, and many who were suffering hastened to consult him and be comforted by his great love. Some of them asked him to become a priest so that he could help even more completely through the mystery of holy confession, since he would then also read the prayer for the absolution of sins. He himself saw this necessity that others be helped and consented to ordination. There was, however, neither a chapel in his keli, though it had become essential, nor did he have any money, but he did have great faith in God. He said a prayer and set off for Karyes, confident that God would find him the money he needed for the chapel. Just before Father Tikhon reached Karyes, the Dikaios of the Russian skeet of the prophet Elijah saw him and called to him. When Father Tikhon drew near, he said, A good Christian in America has sent me a few dollars to give to somebody who doesn't have a chapel so that he can build one. You don't have a chapel, so take it and make one. The elder was so moved and grateful to God that he wept and thanked the Dikaios too and prayed, May God forgive him for the man of God who had sent him the blessing. 
The good Lord who knows people's hearts had made arrangements for the chapel even before the elder had asked him, so that the money would be ready when he asked him for it. It was natural that God would listen to the elder, since from his childhood he had listened to and observed the divine commandments of God and received heavenly blessings. Next he found two monks who were construction workers, which meant that they would say the Jesus prayer while working. When the chapel was finished, he dedicated it to the precious cross because he held it in great reverence, but also because it would naturally follow that he could avoid having a feast day celebration since the day of the precious cross is a fast day and mournful. The elder was never comfortable with feast day celebrations because they create agitation and distraction. Moreover, he celebrated spiritually every day with his quiet cross-resurrectional rule of prayer, which combined the mourning of the cross and the brightness of the resurrection, his great asceticism. And practically no one, no human consolation whatsoever in the hollow of Caliagra, where he gazed at heaven and lived the joys of paradise with the angels and the saints. When anyone asked him, do you live all alone in the desert? The elder would reply, no, I live with the angels and archangels, with all the saints, with the Panagia and with Christ. He did indeed feel the presence of the saints and the assistance of his guardian angel. One day while I was visiting him, he was going up a little staircase when he fell over and became wedged in the doorway because he was wearing so many sleeveless overcoats. It was a struggle for me to get him up. When I asked him afterwards, what would you have done, Elder, by yourself if I hadn't been there? He eyed me strangely and said with complete certainty, my guardian angel would have helped me up. Even though he lived all alone in a desert area with almost nothing at all in his kelly, he needed nothing else since he had Christ within him. For where Christ is, there is paradise. And for Father Tikhon, the Paravoli of the Panagia was paradise on earth. It had been a good many years since he had been out in the world, but without wanting to, he was obliged to go to Thessaloniki with some other fathers, as a witness to a fire which had been set in Kapsala. When the elder returned to the holy mountain, the fathers asked him, What did you think of the city and the people after so many years of not being out in the world? The elder answered, I didn't see any city with people, only a wood with chestnut trees. The elder had reached that holy spiritual state because he very much loved Christ, humility, and deprivation. There was not one half-decent thing in the elder's kelly which would have been of service. Anyone could find as much as he wanted of whatever was in el the elder's kelly, since they were items that had been thrown out into the rubbish pit. But for spiritual people, any old thing that Father Tikhon had was of great value because it was sanctified. Even his rags and tatters were regarded with reverence and taken away as blessings. The fact that he wore old sloppy clothes did not make him look bad because he endowed them with the inner beauty of his soul. For a cap, he took a bodkin and sewed together bits of monastic habits like bags, and wore them, but they sprayed, spread more grace than the valuable meters of the bishops, when, of course, the bishop does not have the pearl of great price 
in his heart. On one occasion, a visitor took a picture of him just as he was, with the bag for a cap and the pajama jacket thrown around his shoulders by the visitor because he had seen that the elder was cold. And now whoever sees the photograph thinks Father Tikhon is wearing a bishop's cloak when it was in fact a motley old pajama jacket. He took great solace in poor and humble things and very much loved not owning anything since it made him free and gave him spiritual wings. So he was able with his winged soul to struggle mightily without feeling physically wearied just as a child does not feel tired while he is doing what his father wishes but rather feels love and affection through his caress. Naturally, this is not by any stretch of the imagination to be compared with the caress of divine grace. As I have mentioned, his handiwork was spiritual struggle, fasting, vigil, prayer, prostrations, and so on, not only for himself but for all the souls of the world, those alive and those fallen asleep. When he had grown old and could no longer get up, after doing a great prostration, he tied a thick rope onto a high rafter and used it to pull himself up. In this way, he was still able to do his prostrations and worship God in all reverence. He observed this rule until he collapsed, once and for all, into bed, where he rested for twenty days before embarking on the true eternal life where he now rests eternally close to Christ. The same rule of eating only dry food, which he, had, which he had had in his youth, he kept until his old age. He considered cooking a waste of time, quite apart from the fact that dainty foods are inappropriate for monks. Naturally, after so much asceticism, and given his spiritual state, he was indifferent to good food, since Christ abode within him, nourishing him on the sweet food of paradise." Whenever he talked, he always referred to sweet paradise, and sweet tears would flow from his eyes. He did not have the heart to concern himself with vanities when he was asked to by worldly people. The very few things he needed to survive he paid for out of the little handiwork he did. Every year he would paint an epitaphios, cloth icon of the burial of Christ, and part with it for five or six hundred drachmas. The money was enough to last him the whole year. As I have mentioned, he was very frugal and content with little. He would even cut a mission fig in two in order to eat the other half later. He would say to me, Oh no, that is too big, while I would have had to eat a kilo in order to feel full. Every Christmas, the elder would get a smoked dried herring for the joyous twelve days of Christmas, since there is a dispensation for fish for the feast. He did not, however, throw away the backbone of the fish, but hung it by a thread on a nail. On feast days of Jesus Christ or the Panagia, he would boil a little water in a tin can, dip the fish bone two or three times in the water so it took on a bit of the smell, and then throw in a little rice. In this way, he observed the dispensation for fish and also condemned himself for eating fish soup in the desert. Then he would hang the backbone on the nail again for the next dispensation until it became white, and only then would he throw it away. When he saw people treating him with reverence, it would disturb him, 
and he would tell them, I am not a real ascetic, but an imposter. Only at the end of his life did he accept a little care and attention from the people who were particularly fond of him, so as not to hurt their feelings. If anybody brought him a blessing of food, he would keep it and then send it on to the elders at Kapsala. If he was sent money, he would give it to a pious grocer to buy loaves of bread to distribute to the poor. Once somebody sent him a check from America. As he was getting it from the post office, however, a man saw him and was overcome by the temptation of avarice. So he went to the elders' Kelly at night to rob him, expecting to find other money there too. Unaware that the elder had already given the money he had been sent to Kira Theodorus, the grocer, to buy bread for the poor. After he had tormented the elder a good deal, he had tied a rope around his neck and tightened it. He ascertained that there really was no money there, and so he got ready to leave. Father Tikhon said to him, God forgive you, my child. The criminal then went to another elder with the same intention, but the police caught up with him there, and he confessed of his own accord that he had also been to Father Tikhon's. The policeman sent a colleague who made an inquiry of the elder since there would be a trial for the thief. The elder was deeply upset and told the policeman, But, my child, I forgave the thief with all my heart. The officer paid absolutely no attention to the words of the elder since he was carrying out orders from above, and he tugged at him and said, Come along quickly, elder. There's no forgiveness in Evlogison here. In the end, the police chief took pity and let him go back to his Kelly from Yerisos because he was crying like a little child at the thought that he would be to blame for the thief being punished. Whenever he remembered that event, he could never wrap his mind around it and he would say to me, My child, those people who are in the world have completely different rules. There's no such thing as Evlogison or may God forgive you. Of course, the elder had always used the word Evlogison, and in accordance with its many monastic meetings, like the phrase, May I have your blessing, or your blessing, when he humbly begged someone else's blessing, he would then give his own blessing with the prayer, May the Lord bless you. After the usual greetings, he would take his visitors into the chapel, and together they would chant the hymns, Lord save thy people, and it is meet indeed. Afterwards, if the weather was good, they would go outside under the olive tree and sit together for five minutes. Then he would get up with great joy and say, Now I have a treat for you. He would draw some water from the cistern to fill a cup for the visitor. He would put some in his own tin can, an old food tin which he also used to boil water. Afterwards, he would go look for some lucumia which sometimes would be either as hard as a rock or half eaten by ants. But since it was a blessing from Father Tikhon, did not cause any disgust whatsoever. When he had everything ready, the elder would make the sign of the cross and say, Me first, your blessing, and wait for the visitor to say the prayer. May the Lord bless you. Otherwise, he would not drink the water. Then he would also give his blessing. He really felt the need to have the blessing of others, not only of the clergy or of monks. 
but even of lay people of all ages. After the treat, he would wait to see if they had any particular matter they needed help with. Whenever he saw that his visitor was an idle sort of man and had come merely to pass the time of day, he would say to him, My child, lazy folks will go to hell as well, you know, not just sinners. If he stayed on and would not go, the elder would leave him, go into the chapel and pray, so that the visitor felt forced to leave. Or again, if anyone tried to take advantage of the elder's simplicity for some purpose or other of his own, Father Tikhon, with his godly insight, would say to him, My child, I don't know much Greek. Go and find a Greek so you can communicate better. Of course, Father Tikhon never begrudged either the time or the effort whenever he saw people with spiritual interests. While he gave advice with his mouth, he prayed with his heart and his mind. His prayer had become self-activating from the heart. People who came to him sensed it because they left feeling greatly strengthened. The elder would keep blessing them until he lost sight of them. Once he had a visit from Father Agathangelos, who was then a deacon at the monastery of Ibaran. When he left, it was still dark and dawn had not yet broken. The elder foresaw the danger which the deacon was about to encounter and at that time had climbed up onto the little garden wall and kept on blessing him. When the deacon had gone as far as the ridge, he saw the elder still blessing him and felt sorry for him. He shouted to him not to tire himself and go into his kelly. But the elder, quite unperturbed, with his hands upraised like Moses, continued to pray and bless him. While the deacon was walking without a care, he suddenly fell into an ensnarement set by hunters who were out for wild boar. One of them was about to pull the trigger, but the prayers of the elder saved the deacon from death and the hunter from prison. This is why the elder would always tell me, Never come here at night, my child, because at night the wild animals are on the prowl and the hunters who are lying in wait and hiding are, looking, are on the lookout for them. Even for the divine liturgy, he would tell the monk who came to help him and act as chanter to come in the morning when it was light. During the divine liturgy, he would tell the monk to stay in the narrow corridor outside the chapel and chant, God have mercy, from there, so that he, Father Tikhon, could feel entirely alone and at ease in his prayer. When they got to the cherubic hymn, Father Tikhon would be taken up in Theoria for twenty or thirty minutes, so that the chanter was obliged to repeat the hymn many times until he heard the footsteps of the elder at the great entrance. When the service was over and I asked the elder what he had seen, he replied, The cherubim and the seraphim glorifying God. And he went on to say, After half an hour my guardian angel brings me back down, and then I continue with the divine liturgy. On another occasion, he had a visit from Father Theoclitos from Dionysiu Monastery. Since Father Tikhon's door was closed and the sweet chanting of psalms could be heard from the chapel, he did not want his knocking at the door to be disruptive, so he waited instead for them to finish, thinking that they had reached the communion hymn. Soon afterwards, Father Tikhon came out and opened the door. When Father Theoclitos went in, he found no one else there except for Father Tikhon. He realized that the voices chanting the psalms had been those of angels. 
in his old age because he was so unsteady on his feet, both Father Maximus and Father Agathangelos, who were from the nearby monastery of Iveron, used to come and celebrate the liturgy. They would also leave him, a, leave him some of the holy body and blood because he received Holy Communion every day. Naturally, he was always well prepared to do so, given the holy life he led. For Father Tikhon, almost all the days of the year were like those of the week of the new creation, and he always lived in the joy of Pascha. You would always hear from his lips, Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, O God. He also recommended to everyone that we should say, Glory to thee, O God, not only when things are going well, but also when we are being tried, because trials are permitted by God as medicine for our souls. Father Tikhon was felt great pain for the souls suffering under the atheist regime in Russia. He would say to me, his eyes brimming with tears, You know, my child, Russia is still under penance from God, but it will pass. For his own self, the elder had not a care, nor was he fearful, because he had such great fear of God, divine constraint and reverence. Since he also struggled and had so much humility, he did not even run the spiritual risk of the fall. Therefore, why should he be afraid? And what was there for him to be afraid of? The demons who tremble before humble people? Or death, which he was constantly pondering and for which he joyfully prepared? He had in fact dug his own grave so it would be ready and had also driven into the ground a cross that he himself had made. Since he had had a premonition of his death, he had written on the cross, Tikhon the sinner, Hieromonk, sixty years on the holy mountain, Glory to you, O God. The elder would always begin with glory to you, O God, and with glory to you, O God, he would end. He had by then so reconciled himself with God that he used to say, Glory to you, O God, more often than, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. He moved, as we have seen, in heavenly realms, given that he also took part in the heavenly doxology with the holy angels during the divine liturgy. Since the flame of divine eros had been ever kindled in his heart, he was not moved by vain things, as I have mentioned. His cell thus was small. He had a little table on which he placed icons, as well as his sleepless vigil oil lamp and censer. Next to it were his angelic habit and his threadbare rasso, or cassock. On the other side of the wall, he had Christ on the cross, and at one side of the cell, were three planks for a bed with a ragged blanket spread over them for a mattress. On top, he had an old cover with the cotton coming out in places. The mice used to take the cotton to make their nests. On his poor imitation of a pillow, he had the gospel and a book of homilies by St. John Chrysostom. The floor of his cell was actually made of planks, though it seemed to have been plastered over because he never swept it and over the years, the mud he had brought in from outside together with the hairs from his head and beard had formed a proper plaster. Father Tikhon paid no attention to the cleaning of his cell, but to the cleansing of his soul, which is why he managed to become a vessel of the grace of God. He continually washed his soul with his many tears and used thick face cloths to wipe them since ordinary handkerchiefs did not serve his need. The elder had reached a very high state of spirituality. 
His soul had become extremely sensitive, but he had also achieved bodily insensitivity in order to have his mind constantly on God. He was not at all troubled by the flies, the mosquitoes, and the fleas, which he had by the thousands. His body was punctured all over, and his clothes were covered in red spots. The thought occurs to me that even if the insects had drawn his blood with syringes, he still would not have felt it. In his cell, everything moved freely, from insects to mice. A monk once said to him, when he saw the mice at play, Elder, would you like me to bring you a cat? Father Tikhon replied, No, my child, I have a cat, one and a half times as big as a cat. It comes here, I feed it, I stroke it, and then off it goes to its den down in the hollow and relaxes. It was a fox, which used to visit the elder regularly, like a good neighbor. He also had a wild sow, which used to bear a little every year next to his garden fence so that he would protect her. Whenever he saw hunters moving about in the neighborhood, Father Tikhon would tell them, My children, there aren't any big boar around here. Best be on your way. The hunters would think that there were no wild boar in the area and go away. The holy elder, like a good father, would feed men spiritually while feeding the large wild animals from the little food he had and filling them even more with his great love. He would also allow the small insects to suck the little blood he had. The elder was strongly built, but had been sapped by his long ascetic struggles. Whenever anyone asked him, how, how are you, elder? Are you well? He would answer, Glory to God, I am well, my child. I am not ill, but I am weak. It upset him to see a plump young man, and even more so when he saw a well-fed monk, because... Corpulence does not suit the angelic habit. One day an extremely obese layman visited him and said, Elder, I am beset by carnal warfare coupled with dirty thoughts which won't allow me to relax. Father Tikhon said to him, If you will be obedient, my child, then with the grace of Christ I will make you an angel. You, my child, must constantly say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me and get through every day on bread and water. On Saturdays and Sundays, you should eat food with a little oil. At night, do 150 prostrations, and then read the supplicatory canon to the Panagia, a chapter from the Gospel, and the life of the saint of the day. Six months later, when he again came to visit him, the elder could not recognize him, because he had gotten rid of all the excess weight, and could at last get through the narrow, door of the chapel easily. The elder asked him, So how are things with you now, my child? The man replied, Now I really do feel like an angel, because I have neither carnal annoyances nor dirty thoughts, and I feel much lighter now that I have lost that weight. It was with just such practical advice that he counseled those who came to him seeking help. Apart, of course, from the immense experience he had acquired, he had also received divine enlightenment from his great ascetic struggles. After his advice, there followed his prayers, of which visitors were intensely aware upon their leaving him. He hardly ever removed his priestly stole, but would usually lift it off one person only to lay it on another, taking the sins away from his fellow men 
in relieving them through the mystery of confession. Whatever people confessed to him he forgot immediately, and so was always able to see everyone in a good light. He had only good thoughts about everyone because his heart and mind had become so purified. Once an abbot asked him, Elder, which of the brothers here in the monastery is the purest? Father Tikhon replied, Holy abbot, all the brothers are pure. He never hurt people, but healed their wounds with the balsam of the love of Christ. He would say to the suffering soul, My child, Christ loves you and has forgiven you. Christ has greater love for sinners who repent and live in humility. He always stressed humble-mindedness and would say characteristically, A humble man has more grace than many others. Every morning God blesses the world with one hand, but when he sees a humble man, he blesses him with both his hands. My, oh my, my child, the person with the greatest humility is the greatest of all. He also used to say about those who retain their virginity that they must also have humility because virginity alone would not save them since hell is also full of prideful virgins. Whenever people boast of their virginity, he would say, Christ will say to them, Since you have no humility, take yourself to hell. But to the person who was a sinner and had repented and lives humbly with a contrite heart and confesses that he is a sinner, Christ will say, Come here, my child, into sweet paradise. Apart from humility and repentance, he also emphasized the remembrance of God, that his people's minds should be constantly focused on God. He also stressed the study of the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Fathers, Evergetinos, the Philokalia, St. John Chrysostom, Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Simeon the New Theologian, Abba Makarios, and Abba Isaac. Study, the elder would say, warms up the soul and cleans out the mind, cleans out the mind, so that one willingly practices asceticism and acquires virtues, but when one doesn't practice asceticism, he acquires passions. One day he asked me, What books do you read, my son? Abba Isaac, I replied. Ah, my child, that saint is great. Abba Isaac won't kill even a flea. By saying this, he meant to stress the great spiritual sensitivity of the saint. Father Tikhon tried to imitate Abba Isaac, not only in his hesychastic spirit, but also in the sensitivity of his spiritual nobility. And he was not a burden to anyone. He used to tell monks that they should live ascetically so as to become free from worldly cares, and not to work like laborers or eat like worldly people. For the work of the monk is prostrations, fasting, prayer, not only for himself but for everyone, the dead and the living, and a little work for the necessities of life, so as not to be a burden to anyone, because too much work and worries make people forget God. He would typically say, Pharaoh gave a lot of work and a lot of food to the people of Israel so that they would forget God. Before giving advice, the elder's custom was to say first a prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten him, which he also recommended to others. He used to say, God sent the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. He is the master of the house. That is why our church begins with, Heavenly King comforted the Spirit of Truth. While he was saying these things about the Holy Spirit, 
his face would be transformed, and many devout people saw this transformation. Some people secretly took the odd photograph of him. Others asked his blessing to take a photograph of him, and he gave his accord quite simply. He would get up straight away, go into the chapel, and put on his angelic habit. He would take the cross in one hand, and with the other unravel his long beard, which he had knotted. He then looked just like the patriarch Abraham, particularly at the end of his life, when he had become shining white inwardly and outwardly. Having prepared himself, he stood under the olive tree to have his photograph taken and took up the stance of a little child. He had completely spiritually matured and had become like a little child, just as Christ recommends that we become like innocent children. The fathers who sought his advice visited him more regularly in his old age to be of some service to him and would ask him, Shall we cut some wood for you, elder? And he would answer, be patient. If I don't die in the summer, then you can cut some wood for me for the winter. In 1968, he had a presentiment of his death because he continually referred to death. Even his little bodily strength had deserted him. After the feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos, August 15th, he took to his bed and drank only water because he was burning inside. Despite the fact that he was in such a condition, he did not want anyone to stay with him so as not to have any interruptions to his unceasing prayer. When he had reached the last week of his life on earth, he told me to stay by his side because we were about to be parted since he was leaving for the true life. Even during those ten days, he did not allow me to stay with him all the time, but directed me to go to the small cell next door so that I too could pray after having given him just a little help. Of course, I did not have the wherewithal to relieve him properly, but since he had never given his weary body any real relief, even a little help seemed a great deal to him. One day I had saved two lemons and made him a lemon drink. As soon as he drank it, he was refreshed and looked at me strangely. My, my, but that is good water. Where did you find it? May Christ grant you forty golden crowns. It seems that he had never drunk lemonade, or if he had, it would have been when he was very young, so he had forgotten the taste of it. Since he was completely immobile on his bed, having given up to it whatever little bodily strength he had, he had left, he could no longer get up to go to the chapel of the precious cross, where he had celebrated with reverence for so many years. And so he asked me to fetch him the cross from the holy table for consolation. When he saw the cross, his eyes glistened, and after reverently kissing it, he held it tightly in his hand with all the strength that was left in him. I had also tied a sprig of basil to the cross and asked him, Does it smell nice, elder? He answered, Paradise, my son, smells a lot better. On one of his last days, I had gone out to get him a little water. When I opened the door of his cell afterwards, he looked at me strangely and said, Is that you, St. Sergius? No, Elder, it's me, Paisios. Just now, my son, the Panagia, St. Sergius, and St. Seraphim were here. Where did they go? I realized that something was going on, so I asked him, What did the Panagia say to you? 
that we will have the feast and then she will take me. It was the afternoon of the eve of the feast of the birth of the Panagia, September 7, 1968, and three days later on September 10th, he fell asleep in the Lord. On the day before his last, the elder said to me, Tomorrow I will die, and I don't want you to sleep so that I can bless you. I felt really sorry for him that evening because he tired himself out with his hand on my head all the time for three hours, blessing me and embracing me for the last time. To express his gratitude for the little water I had given him in his last days, he said to me, My sweet Paisios, we will retain love unto the ages of ages, my child. It is precious, our love. You will make your prayer from here, and I will make mine from heaven. I believe that God will have mercy on me, because for sixty years, my child, I have been a monk, constantly saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. He also said, I will be celebrating in paradise forevermore. You pray from here, and I will come and see you every year. If you live in this Kelly, it will be a joy to me. But whatever God wants, my child, I also have provisions for you, tinned food for three years. And he pointed to six small tins of sardines next to him and another four tins of squid, which somebody had brought him a long time ago and had remained since then exactly where the visitor had put them. For me, those tins were not enough to last even a week. The elder again repeated, We, my child, you and I, will have precious love unto the ages of ages, and I will come every year to see you. And all the while tears were streaming from my eyes. It is true that those last ten days I stayed with him were God's greatest blessing for me, because I was helped more than at any other time, as they were given to me as an opportunity to experience him up close and to get to know him better. What made the biggest impression on me was how fervently he approached the subject of the soul's salvation. Next to his bed were letters ready for me to post to bishops he knew, so that they could commemorate him as soon as he died. He also gave me instructions to bring a bishop to read prayers over his grave and then leave him there, not to have his relics exhumed until Christ's second coming. In the meantime, I had let the monastery know that Father Tikhon was approaching his end, and Father Basil came so that we could prepare him. You could see by then that Father Tikhon was gradually going out, like a vigil oil lamp when the oil in the glass has run out and the little left in the wick is flickering its last. Thus his sanctified soul departed, leaving behind his body and a great emptiness. The two of us prepared him. In the morning we let the other fathers know. They came and the priests whom he knew devoutly read the burial service. Of course his departure left us with pain in our souls, because his very presence had removed pain and dispersed discomfort. Dispersed comfort. From then on the elder himself would visit us from heaven and help us all the more. In any case he himself had promised I will come to see you every year. Three whole years passed without him appearing to me, and that set me thinking. Perhaps I am at fault over something. After three years, he made his first visit to me. If by every year the elder meant that he would start after three years, 
then that is a comfort to me because it means that I am not to blame in the matter. The first time was on September 10, 1971, in the evening after midnight. While I was saying the Jesus prayer, I suddenly saw the elder come into the cell. I leapt up and embraced his feet, which I kissed with devotion. I do not know how, but somehow he freed himself from my arms, and as he was leaving, I saw that he went into the chapel and dispersed. Naturally, when events like that happen, you are utterly at a loss, nor can you explain them logically, which is why they are called miracles. I immediately lit the candle, because I had only the vigil oil lamp going when this had happened, so that I could note in my diary the day on which the elder had appeared to me and remember it. When I saw that it was the day on which the elder had fallen asleep in the Lord, September 10th, I was very sad and chastised myself for not even having noticed which day it was. I am sure the good Father will forgive me, because that day I had had visitors at the Kalivi from dawn to dusk, and was so tired and befuddled that I had completely forgotten. Otherwise, I would have done something for my own benefit and also to bring a little joy to the elder with an all-night vigil. I do not know if he had appeared to anyone else before his first visit to me. In any case, he also appeared to a monk neither of us had known, Father Andrew, who used to be at the monastery of Karakelu. It happened at my Kelly in the following way. Father Andrew had come to my Kelly so I could help him in something he wanted. Naturally, he did not know me, and I did not know him. So he waited outside my Kelly, under the olive tree, because he thought I was away. I was inside in the workshop and could not be heard because I was varnishing small icons. When I had finished, I chanted the Holy God, the, the Trisagi on him, and went out. As soon as he saw me, Father Andrew gave a start and related the following incident with great wonder. While I was waiting under the olive tree, I had closed my eyes, but was still aware of my surroundings. Suddenly I see an elder coming out of those rosemary bushes and saying to me, Who are you waiting for? Father Paisios, I answered. He is over there, he said, and pointed towards the Kelly. Just at the moment he was pointing, I heard you chanting the Holy God, and you came out. He was some saint or other, Father Paisios, because I can recognize them. I have seen things like that before. Then I related a few things about the elder and told him that this that his grave was over by the rosemary. I had planted rosemary all around, and it had grown so big that the grave was no longer visible. I did not want his relics to be trodden on, since he had given me instructions not to have him exhumed. I think that from that the little I have mentioned and written about the life of the Venerable Elder, much will be understood by people with inner spiritual experiences. Naturally, those who live humbly and inconspicuously can understand how much we wrong the saints when we see only their outer virtues, those which are not hidden, and write only about them, while the spiritual wealth of our saints remains, for the most part, unknown. The little we usually know about the saints is either what has escaped from them because that they could not hide it, 
or because their great love forced them to perform that particular spiritual act of mercy. Of course, only God knows the spiritual stature of the saints. Not even the saints themselves know, because they counted only their sins and not their spiritual measure. Bearing in mind this holy rule of the saints, that they take no comfort in being praised by people, I have tried to restrict myself to the essential facts. I think that Father Tikhon will be pleased and won't complain, as did his friend Staret Siluan when Father Sophronius first wrote his life. Staret Siluanos appeared at that time to Father Tikhon and told him, That blessed Father Sophronios has written a lot in praise of me, and I didn't want it. That, of course, is why they are saints. God has glorified them because they avoided being glorified by men. May the prayers of Father Tikhon and all the known and unknown saints help us through the difficult times in which we live. Amen. Here follows the prayer of the elder, which he wrote with great pain and many tears, and which he would send to suffering souls in Russia as balsam from the Paravoli of the Panagia. Glory to Christ Golgotha. O godly Golgotha, sanctified with the blood of Christ, we beg you, tell us how many thousands of sinners, by the grace of Christ, repentance and tears, you have cleansed and brought to fill the bridal chamber of paradise. O with your ineffable love, o Christ our King, with your grace you have filled all the celestial palaces with repentant sinners. You have mercy on those here below too and save them. And who could render you worthy thanks, had he even the mind of an angel? Sinners, come quickly. Holy Golgotha is open, and Christ is merciful. Fall before him and kiss his holy feet. He alone is the merciful one, can heal our wounds. Oh, how happy we shall be when Christ, the most merciful, counts us worthy, with great humbleness, fear of God, and burning tears to wash his spotless feet, and with love to kiss them. Then Christ the merciful will be pleased to wash away our sins and will open unto us the gates of paradise, where in great joy together with the archangels and angels, the cherubim and the seraphim and all the saints, we shall eternally glorify the Savior of the world, our most sweet Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity undivided and of one essence. Hieromonk Tikhon, the Holy Mountain, the life of the elder was written on the 26th of May, the day of the Holy Apostle Karpos in 1977 at the Stavro Nikiton Kelly of the Precious Cross. Glory to you, O God, Monk Paisios. Elder Evlogios, the disciple of Elder Haji Georgis. To the north of Karies, towards the monastery of Vatopedi, is the Kelly of St. George, Phaneromenos. Six spiritual sons of Hagi Georgis lived the ascetic life there, having as their elder the oldest one, Elder Evlogios. Later, two other brothers were added to their brotherhood, Father Pacomios and Father Georgios, who thus became spiritual grandchildren of Hagi Georgis. It is a joy to see this holy patristic continuum and godly transmission of the monastic life from the righteous grandfather elders to the righteous father Hadji Georgis, and from that father to sons and grandsons. 
It is, of course, worth writing a great deal about them, as well as about Elder Eplogios. Since his compatriot, one of the fathers of the monastery of Simonopetra, has also written about him, I shall restrict myself to one event from the end of his life to show how the athlete of Christ, Father Evlogios, wrestled with demons into the depths of his old age. When the elder was an old man past his hundredth birthday, he used to sit on a sofa and say the Jesus prayer without ceasing. One day his two disciples, Father Pacomios and Father Georgios, went to pick olives and Father Evlogios locked the door and leant against the sofa to say the Jesus prayer. All of a sudden he heard a loud noise coming from his cell and he interrupted the Jesus prayer. Then thirty demons hurled themselves upon him, threw him to the floor, and beat him mercilessly. Naturally, the elder was unable to regain his feet after such a terrible beating. When it was noon, the fathers returned from their work and called the elder to open the door for them. But how could the poor elder here, let alone get up, in the state he was in? Father Georgios was worried and got into the cell by a window opened the door, and both fathers went into the elder's cell in great trepidation. And what did they see? Elder Evlogios down on the floor, beaten black and blue. He said to them quite calmly, Listen, thirty demons got together to beat me, not just one or two. He had a wooden cross hanging in his cell, and it was before this cross that he usually prayed. Once while he was praying, a devil got in through the window to torment the elder. Suddenly the elder saw the cross disengage itself from the wall and approach the devil, who immediately disappeared, the villain. Then he saw the cross move by itself back to its normal place. That was how Elder Evlogios struggled until his 108th year. Once he had completely matured spiritually and was due to leave this life for that of eternity, with his spiritual riches, he was informed by God to prepare himself and his monks by giving them his last advice along with his blessing. My monks, I am now leaving. I will be going near St. Anthony. Later on you will come up as well to paradise. You, Father Georgios, will live eighty years. The blessed servant of God, Father of Logios, then asked to be given Holy Communion and fell asleep in the Lord on April 11, 1948. When Father Georgios had reached the age of 80, he said, This year I will die. That is what the elder told me. The doctor, seeing how strongly built he was, had said to him, You will live another 30 years. But as soon as he reached 80, Father Georgios closed his eyes for good, and everyone marveled. Elder Pacomios, the disciple of Elder Evlogios and grandson of Elder Haji Georgis. Just as I had done for Elder Evlogios, so shall I do for his blessed disciple, Father Pacomios. I shall mention something from the end of his life, too. Devout strugglers who have pure thoughts will discern the purified soul of Elder Pacomios for themselves. On a Thursday, Three days before his death, Father Pacomios summoned Father Georgios and said to him, Be so kind, Father Georgios, 
as to go to Kaletsu to buy fish for the feast of St. George on Monday. But buy a lot of fish this time because you will have two feasts. I will be celebrating in heaven with St. George. I won't be with you. Father Georgios went straight off to Koletsu, brought back the fish and prepared them so that they would not spoil. On Friday, Elder Pacomios again sent for Father Georgios to invite the fathers to the feast and said to him, Tell the fathers to arrange their chores because they will have two feasts here, my funeral with the memorial service and on the next day the memory of St. George. Father Georgios announced it to the fathers just as Father Pacomios had told him. On Saturday morning he sent for Father Demetrios to come and give him Holy Communion. As soon as he saw the priest he began to chant joyfully of your mystical supper and after having received Holy Communion said, Glory to God. He then embraced the fathers who were there with him and his sanctified soul departed for the heavens on April 22, 1974. On Sunday they had his funeral and memorial service and a festal meal, while on Monday they celebrated St. George's Day and a second feast was held. Father Pacomios, however, celebrated with St. George in heaven, just as he had said, satiated with the beauty of paradise and drunk on the spiritual wine of the love of God together with St. George. May God in his goodness make us too worthy of tasting a little of it. Amen. Father Seraphim, the Anchorite of Athos A devout young man from a wealthy family in Athens had already lost his mother through a dreadful illness when his father suddenly died a short time later. The young man was deeply shaken by the death of his parents, and that spurred him to reflect upon the vanity of this world. So he gave all his riches away to the poor, left his large commercial enterprise to his employees, and came to the holy mountain. On his way through New Skeet, he became acquainted with Father Neophytos, who was living in the Calivi of St. Demetrios, and where the young man was given hospitality and also made his confession. Father Neophytos told him a great deal about the ascetics, and a divine passion kindled within him when he heard of the anchorites at the peak of the holy mountain. He asked Father Neophytos' blessing to be received into his brotherhood, to be tonsured a monk, and then to be given a blessing to go and live as an ascetic high up on Athos. Father Neophytos, who saw that he was very devout and humble, accepted him but kept him as a layman for five years, quietly preparing him spiritually. No one else knew of the sacred aim of the young man, who even avoided meeting up with the other fathers of the skeet. When he had been trained spiritually for five years, the elder made him a monk and gave him the name Seraphim and his blessing to live as an ascetic high up on Athos, out of contact with everyone. Three years later, as I was told by Father Dionysius, one of his brethren, he came down once and told them of the temptations he had encountered at the beginning, how the demons had constantly threatened him. In fact, one night they cast away the old piece of corrugated iron that he had placed in front of his cave to keep out the worst of the wind and rain, 
Father Seraphim was not only unshaken, but smilingly said to the demons, God forgive you. You have done well because I had made the cave ugly with that corrugated iron I had put there. Father Seraphim turned up again five years later, and Father Neophytos gave him an artiforion with holy bread, whereupon he left for the peak of Athos and was never seen again. Father Seraphim became an angel, a seraphim. How could he not take to the air since he had thrown everything away for the sake of Christ? His blessing be upon us. Amen. The Unknown Anchorite, probably one of the anchorites of Athos who live in obscurity. When I came to the Holy Mountain for the first time in 1950, I was going up from Capsucalivia to St. Anne's when I lost my way and instead of taking the path to the skeet of St. Anne's, I went up toward the peak of Athos. After I had walked a good long way, I realized I was too high up and looked around for some path to take me down quickly. In my anguish, I implored the Panagia to help me, and suddenly an anchorite with a radiant face appeared before me. He was about seventy years old, and his clothing showed that he had no contact with people. He was wearing a habit that looked as if it was made of sailcloth, but very faded and full of holes. He had filled the holes with wooden awls, the way farmers close holes in bags when they do not have a needle and string. He also had a leather bag, discolored, with the holes filled in the same way. Around his neck was a thick chain from which a box hung in front of his chest. It seems there was something holy inside. Before I could ask him, he said to me, My child, this is not the path to St. Anne's, and he pointed to the right one. From his whole appearance, it seemed as he was a saint. Then I asked the hermit, Where do you live, elder? He answered, Somewhere around there, indicating the peak of Athos. Since I had been wandering around left and right, trying to find an elder to spiritually inform me, I had forgotten what day it was and had lost track of the date. I asked the hermit and he told me it was Friday. Then he took out a little leather pouch from which he drew little bits of wood with notches on them. From the notches he was able to tell me the date. I took his blessing, went down the path he had shown me, and came out at the skeet of St. Anne's. All the while I was turning over in my mind the luminous face of the anchorite, which had been radiant. Later, when I had heard that there are twelve anchorites at the peak of Athos, some said seven, I got to thinking, so I related the incident to some experienced elders who told me. That would have been one of the righteous anchorites who live invisibly at the peak of Athos. Hieromonk Anthemos, the Fool for Christ Father Anthemos was from Sofia in Bulgaria, where he had been a married parish priest. After the death of his wife, in about 1841, he came to the Paravoli of the Panagia and took root like a good plant, as we shall see below, blossoming with a sweet fragrance. His first place of repentance was in the holy monastery of Simonus Petrus, where he was tonsured a monk. 
Afterwards, he began to act as a fool for Christ in order to hide the inner wealth of his spiritual experience. He made the whole of Athos his place of repentance as he continually traveled about in the desert, sometimes staying in caves and at other times in the hollows of trees. Now and again, he would also appear at the Russian monastery of St. Pantaleman because he could understand the services which were in Russian. He usually hid in the narthex and followed the services from there. Whenever he saw one of the fathers watching him and regarding him with reverence, he would start behaving stupidly, talking to himself or making jokes, and in that manner he would spoil their thoughts. He would stay at the monastery for varying lengths of time, sometimes a few days, sometimes a little longer. Then he would disappear again onto the mountain of Athos, entirely alone, for two or three months, before making his appearance again at the Russian monastery of St. Pantaleon. At the beginning of his divine madness, he wore an old rasso cassock for five years, and later patched up garments. Later still, he ended up wearing an old sack in which he had made three holes, one at the top to put his head through, and two more for his arms. He wore it everywhere. It was for this reason that he was known as Saki. When he returned to the forest, however, he took off his, cat, his sack as a precaution against tearing it, and instead tore his body on the branches. Naturally, those who had no inner depth, but judged from outward appearances, called him crazy. But they were taken aback when Father Anthemos would tell them their innermost thoughts. In this manner, he spiritually edified those who had a good disposition, revealing their innermost thoughts to them. Because fools for Christ have such great humbleness, one observes that they also have great purity, that is, spiritual clarity, such that they know the hearts of men and even the mysteries of God. Just such a man was Father Anthemos, who had covered his own pure heart with an old sack. Whenever he went to the monastery of St. Pantaleon, he would not go in but stayed with the monastery workers and sat and ate with them in the same refectory. It seems that the abbot of the monastery got word of this and asked the monk on duty to take care of the ascetic elder, Father Anthemos. From then on, the monk who was assigned to take care of the workers' refectory held him in great reverence, helped him, and watched over him. In this way, he gained the special trust of the elder and was able to understand some of his hidden virtues. One of his great virtues was the gift he had in the matter of fasting. He could fast for days on end. He went once to the Russian monastery before the holy apostles fast, utterly exhausted. The monk on duty received him with great joy and prepared something for him to eat. The elder began to eat while the monk who was waiting on table went in and out. He looked at the elder who was munching away all the time and passed judgment on him. Such a withered up weak monk, yet he can eat so much. Upset by those thoughts of condemnation, the monk went to his cell. When Father Anthemos had finished his food, he went and sat at the door of the monk's cell. Seeing his friend troubled by those thoughts, he took pity on him. In order to help him, he was compelled to tell him why he had eaten so much, so that he would be more careful about judging other people. 
We can also learn from this and avoid judging people. Taking him by the hand, he asked him, Brother, do you perhaps know what humble-mindedness is? Out of constraint, the brother answered, No, I don't. Then the elder said to him, Humble-mindedness constitutes this, in not judging anybody, but in thinking yourself worse than everybody. See, just now you went astray and judged me because I was eating so much. But what you don't know is how many days I've gone without eating at all. Do you remember the last time I was here and had something to eat? The brother replied, I remember, Father, you were here with us on Sunday of Thomas and you ate, but I haven't seen you since. The elder said to him, Well, now you see how many days I spent without eating. Footnote says, In other words, he had not eaten from Sunday of Thomas until the beginning of the apostles' fast, about seven weeks. Continued, Yet you judge me because I was eating so much. My brother, not all God's gifts are the same. Everyone is given something by God. Well, to me, God has given the strength to bear cold and hunger. Do you think you could bear as much? Are you able to humble yourself, take off the habit, and come with me to the neighboring monastery, and then with those same clothes spend the winter at the peak of Athos? You being a chanter, how do you chant to God? Your mind is elsewhere, on distractions rather than on God. Just you listen to how I chant. Father Anthemus raised his hands to the heavens and with heaving sobs chanted Alleluia while tears streamed from his, fa from his eyes. The monk assigned to the refectory was at a loss for words and felt great contrition. The elder then said to him, So you see, my brother, don't judge anyone because you don't know who has been given what gift. You just pay more attention to your own self. The brother made a prostration to the elder and asked his forgiveness in wonder at the latter's clairvoyance. From then on, Elder Anthemos began to confide in the brother all the more. At another time, another brother, who had been fooled by Father Anthemos's pretenses, said to himself, What kind of clairvoyant is this? Do all people with the gift of clairvoyance eat as much? The elder discerned his thoughts called him over and said to him, Brother, you want to be a monk, and yet your thoughts are always running back to Russia. We'll go there and fulfill your wish, but you will be back here again later, and then you will be deemed worthy of becoming a monk. The words of the elder were fulfilled with great precision. Indeed, that brother was led astray by his thoughts, left the monastery, and returned to Russia. A year later, however, he came back to the holy mountain and was tonsured a monk in the same monastery. The monk assigned the tables in the refectory held Father Anthemos in great respect. He considered him a saint, but was afraid of expressing his awe, well aware that he did not like being praised. Once when the elder came again, the monk was overjoyed and prepared something for him to eat, though he himself, out of respect, did not want to sit with him. He started bustling about the refectory in order to escape the elder's attention. When he had finished his food, the elder got up from the table and said, All right, all right, stand still. 
May God have mercy on you and keep you steady. One of the Russian Hiram monks told that same brother how he had one day been overwhelmed by nostalgia for his homeland and began thinking about leaving the holy mountain to return to Russia. While he was thinking about doing this, out of nowhere Father Anthemos suddenly came into his cell and said, Father, the Panagia sent me to tell you not to go to Russia, because if you leave the desert for the world, you will fall into sin. At one point, Father Anthemos lived in Hezekiah on the heights of Athos for a long time. The monk assigned to the refectory was very worried and prayed to God to inform the elder to come to the monastery in order to bring him spiritual benefit. He was also thinking he might be worn out by his labors in the desert, and if he were here, I could look after him with a little food or make some tea. The next morning, the elder came to the monastery and said jokingly to his friend, Here you are, I have come from Athos, according to your wishes, completely exhausted and with my feet scraped by the stones. Your tea is worth all the effort. The brother saw the elder's clairvoyance and asked forgiveness for the trouble he had caused him. On another occasion, the same brother felt deep sorrow and listlessness and prayed that God send him his friend, Father Anthemos, to comfort him. No more than a few hours later, Father Anthemos appeared before him. On seeing him, the dejected brother was overjoyed and asked him, How is it, Father, that you came in the hour of my need? The elder smiled and answered, You wanted to see me and ask God, so I came. Another time at the Russian monastery of St. Pantalemon, on the eve of October 1st, when there is an all-night vigil for the protecting veil of the Panagia, Father Anthemos arrived at the monastery nearly dead. When he met the brother, his friend, he said, Tonight I was not far from the monastery of Zografu, praying in the desert, standing on a rock. As I was praying, I saw the Panagia descending from heaven to your monastery. I was filled with joy at this vision and set off in a hurry to meet her here so she could cover me the sinner with her veil, together with the servants honoring her. However, just as I had started running here from that place, a snake suddenly appeared. It struck at me angrily and gave me a terrible bite in the leg. I realized that the bite was from the envy of the evil one and paid no attention to the bite because I was in a hurry to get to your monastery. The brother looked at the elder's leg, and the wound from the bite really was a serious one. The elder's great love for God had made him completely insensitive to bodily afflictions. The winter of 1862 on Athos was very cold and snowy. At that time, Father Anthemos was up on the heights of Athos, deep in the desert, living in the hollow of a tree. A lot of snow fell, making him completely snowbound, so that it was impossible for him to come out of there. He spent 46 days there without bread. Before winter would set in, he would almost always be found closer to the monastery. The elders of the Russian monastery learned that in that freezing and snowy winter, Father Anthemos was not nearby and began to worry about him. At the end of 46 days, Father Anthemos arrived at the monastery utterly exhausted and numb with cold. 
When the brother suddenly saw him, he cried out in joy, Ah, father, is that you? We had given up hope of ever seeing you again. Where have you been all this time? Well, I was living in the hollow of a tree, answered the elder with a smile. What did you have to eat there, father? asked the brother. Victor, my brother, God alone knows what I suffered from the demons and the freezing cold, but St. John the Baptist appeared and saved me from death. Once Elder Anthemos had not been at the Russian monastery for five months. The monks did not know why. They were worried and many different thoughts occurred to them. Maybe somebody has offended him, and so on. The spiritual father of the monastery knew a hermit whom Anthemos trusted and asked him to find out the reason. The hermit asked Father Anthemos, who replied, As long as they praise me there and honor me as a saint, I'm not going back. The last time I was there, one of the hieromonks fell at my feet and said, Pray for me, Holy Father, sinner that I am, that I may be saved through your prayers. You see, how can I go there when they treat me like a saint? After that, Father Anthemos went to the monastery rather stealthily and entrusted Father Victor with some of the secrets about his life during the course of their conversations. Another time when he was visiting the monastery and Father Victor was setting the table for him, the elder said to him, St. John the Merciful visited your monastery yesterday. That day was Sunday, and according to custom, hermits, ski dwellers, and several lay people came and ate in the refectory and were then given a blessing. Father Anthemos had no fixed abode, but rather the whole of Athos was his dwelling. In the last years of his life, he lived close to the Bulgarian monastery of Zogra Zografu and often helped with the construction work and repairs on the monastery, carrying stones and water. Footnote, this would have been work on the new buildings on the north side, completed in 1865. In August 1867, the great ascetic visited his beloved Russian monastery of St. Pantalemon for the last time. He went into the monastery and straight to the guest house. There he met his friend, Father Victor, and spoke with him at length, instructing him on how to defeat evil thoughts and the passions. Finally, he said to him outright, I will not be coming here any longer because I am going to die soon. Indeed, that's what happened. At the end of November in the same year, he went to the monastery of Zografu and fell ill. They put him in the monastery infirmary where he remained for 12 days. On December 9, 1867, Father Anthemos left the Paravoli of the Panagia, where he had struggled with Philotimo and rested in the Lord. His blessing be upon us. Amen. Note the biography of righteous Father Anthemos was published in the book Modern Athenite Ascetics, 9th edition, Moscow, 1900, pages 31 to 40. I have abbreviated it somewhat without changing what Hieromark Monk Arseni wrote. I did it with good, the good intentions, lest some things concerning the Righteous Father are misinterpreted. The Wondrous Father Daniel At about the time of Elder Hadji Georges, the Wondrous Elder Daniel also lived on the Holy Mountain. 
He too had also worked miracles even as a novice monk. At that time, he had greatly impressed the devout pilgrims, and indeed some of his miracles were published in religious journals by pious Russians. Therefore, I would like to record the little I have learned of the Holy Father, because it was of great benefit to me, and I would like it to be so for others too. As I had been informed, he was a native of Greece and arrived on the holy mountain at about the time of the Greek Revolution in 1821. The devout young man first made a pilgrimage to the Panagia, the Portetisa, gatekeeper, at the monastery of Iveron. Then he went on to the monastery of the great Lavra, where he venerated St. Athanasios and prayed fervently that our Panagia would guide him to a virtuous elder to submit to in order to become a monk. With a light heart, he then went on his way with complete trust in God. When he had gone past Karasia and was on his way to the skeet of St. Anne, he took the wrong path and ended up at the Kelly of St. Artemios. The elder there was a very devout man and a great struggler, endowed with many virtues, so the young man felt at ease with him. The other fathers from the surrounding Kalia, who saw the young novice engage in the monastic struggle on the same terms as his elder, were rather troubled. They told the elder to be a little more careful and lenient with him because he was so young and had only suddenly just come into asceticism. But the elder would say, Don't you worry, I know what sort of person I have. In a short time, the young man became a monk and was given the name Daniel. He reached great spiritual heights because he was pure, not only in body and soul, but also in his mind, because he always had good thoughts, and because Christ dwelled in his clean heart. On one occasion, they had lit the oven to bake bread and dry rusks. While he was raking the glowing charcoal in order to spread the heat equally in the oven, the wooden handle of the rake burned through, and the metal head remained inside the hot oven. Father Daniel told his elder about it at once, so as not to hold up the baking process, and the elder replied, What are you looking at me for? Make the sign of the cross, get in there, and take it out, so we can get on with the baking. Father Daniel made the sign of the cross and went into the hot oven. He picked up the red-hot iron rake head with his hands, without suffering the slightest burn, and without burning a single hair of his beard. The most important thing of all is that it didn't even occur to him that he had done anything special. On another occasion again, an elder from one of the Wallachian Kalia in the neighborhood had fallen ill and found some relief for his complaint in eating those slightly bitter gherkins. When winter came, the pains from the same illness recurred, so he went down to the monastery of St. Paul to try and get hold of even some pickled gherkins to help with the pains, but unfortunately he did not find any. And so worried and in pain, he made his way up the incline from St. Anne's to the cross. Although it was winter and there were not even pickled gherkins available, all of a sudden Father Daniel appeared, left six or seven fresh gherkins in front of him, and left straight away. The sick father was amazed and glorified God. As soon as he ate them, he was cured once and for all. On that occasion, Father Daniel had brought love, a blessing, 
from a warm, faraway country. At that time, there were no greenhouses in Greece. There was another elder from the Wallachian, Kalia, who was returning to his Kelly from St. Anne's in the depths of winter. As soon as he had breasted the ridge, he was engulfed in a blizzard. He was forced to retrace a few of his steps and take shelter under a rock, because night had fallen and he did not have time to get back to St. Anne's. Apart from that, it was snowing heavily and a gale was blowing. While he was huddled there under the rock, shivering, at a certain point in the night, he felt someone cuddling him and making him really warm, and he fell into a sweet sleep. Then he saw that he was in the arms of Father Daniel, who was embracing him with great love. When it was light in the morning, he awoke from his sweet sleep and stood up to be on his way since the blizzard had stopped. But what did he see? The snow was everywhere around, but there on the rock it had melted from the divine warmth shed by Father Daniel. The elder was warmed spiritually too and went rejoicing to his Kelly, praising God. Father Daniel was constantly warmed by the love of Christ. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Cosmas of the Monastery of Pantocrator, the Wine Grower. Elder Cosmas was born in Angelocori in Thrace in 1897. His worldly name was Cleanthes, and he lived his life as a monastic even from when he had been in the world. He practiced asceticism while working his piece of land. He was a gardener. There he also cultivated love for others while constantly harvesting love from Christ. He performed many acts of charity and especially helped those who were prey to stealing when in need so as to protect them from the mortal sin of theft and even worse. On one occasion, a little boy who told me the story himself when he was an adult went to Cleanthes' garden to buy produce and then was to have gone to buy other things from the shops. No sooner had he got to the garden, what did he see? He had lost his money. The young boy started to cry and began to have bad thoughts and equally bad solutions to his dilemma because he was afraid of the beating his mother would give him. After he had calmed the boy down, Cleanthes, as he was then called, said to him, Do you remember how much money your mother gave you, my son, and what she told you to buy? Yes, replied the young boy. So he gave him the garden produce and the correct change and then said, Now don't worry, but be more careful next time. This was the sort of thing, amongst many, that he had done in the world when he used to live in his village. Around 1914, he left the world, his brother in his garden, and came to the Paravoli of the Panagia to engage in the struggle together with his spiritual brothers. He was tantured a monk in 1915. He stayed in the monastery of Stavronikita until 1924, and then with the change of calendar, left the next year for the Cenobitic Monastery of the of Pantocrator. Footnote. In 1924, the Church of Greece adopted the new calendar. A Cenobitic Monastery 
is one in which the abbot is elected for life and to whom all its monks owe absolute obedience. None of the monks are permitted to own personal property, but they hold all things in common. Monastic habit, common food, common prayer, and common participation in the monastic tasks for meeting the needs of the monastery. There he asked the fathers if he could live outside the monastery and the vineyard, which was close to the place of his repentance. He also lived the ascetic life in other places on the holy mountain until 1939. From 1939 onwards, however, he carried on his struggle at the vineyard, work all day and unceasing prayer. He completely disregarded his body because all of his effort was directed at tending to his soul. His clothes were caked in mud from the sweat and the soil. In a corner on the floor, he had some old blankets to lie on, which had so much dirt on them that if you had scattered seeds on them, they would have sprouted. Although he worked very hard and also struggled in asceticism with great philotimo, he got by on a very sparse diet, greens, the odd nut, and dried rusks. Elder Cosmas would never take the money that the idiorhythmic monastery gave in exchange for monastic tasks and on which the fathers lived. He used to say, You keep it, fathers, and I will take it all together later on. Footnote. Idiorhythmic is a type of monasticism where, unlike the cenobium, there is no abbot, but only a superior elected for one year. Each of the monks owns property and takes care of his own needs, meals, and so on. Return to the story. They thought he meant he would take it in his old age, but Father Elder Cosmas meant in the next life. Likewise, any food and the like which the monastery gave him, he would hand out as a blessing to the elders in Kapsala. If any elder refused them, then the next time Father Cosmas went, he would say to him, Elder, I have brought some things here to sell, and he would then sell them for next to nothing. In this way, he would set the elder's mind at rest and then give away the trifling amount of money to someone else as a blessing. Through his contacts with the fathers, he was also spiritually benefited by their advice. He had no other contacts except when he went to church and received Holy Communion. He was always to be seen weeding under the vines and cleansing his soul with tears and continuous prayer. He was on the short side and burnt by the sun, but at times his face shone. I saw it with my own eyes, but other fathers also told me about it. The last time I saw him, it made a particular impression on me because I was asking him about something. His face again shone even more brightly, and I was dazzled by Elder Cosmas. That was our last meeting. On April 13, 1970, Elder Cosmas from Angelacori in Thrace, flew from the Paravoli of the Panagia to the heavens like an angel. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Father Philaritos, the abbot of the Holy Monastery of Constamanitu. The fathers of the Holy Monastery of Constamanitu naturally have a great deal to write about their holy elder because they had lived in close contact with him for many years. From afar, I knew only a little about him, but it would be unfair to make no reference at all to the Holy Elder 
because he was distinguished for his virtues among the fathers and abbots of his time, and he was very well known. Once a reserve officer visited the holy monastery of Constamanitu in about 1950. Father Filaritos called him over by name and told him about an adventure he, the officer, had had. He advised him what to do and comforted him. The officer was completely at a loss. He was astounded by the elder's gift of insight and said to him with great reverence, Elder, I will become a monk just as soon as I am discharged. The elder answered, By all means, my child, but not in this monastery, because in three years you will have a problem with the secretary. The elder had foreseen even a temptation the man would have encountered three years hence. So when the officer was discharged from the army, Father Filaritos gave him his advice and sent him to another monastery where he became a monk. Every month, however, he used to go and seek the advice of the holy elder. One day when he visited him, he found Father Filaritos sitting in a corner of his cell, clutching his head. Father Ananias, the former officer, embraced him with concern and asked him, What is it, elder? What is the matter? And the elder, much troubled, answered, Ananias, my child, I haven't had any temptation today. God has deserted me. The athlete of Christ, Father Filaritos, wanted to fight temptations every day in order to be crowned by Christ. On another occasion, Father Filaritos saw a layman and said to him, Well, my poor man, you are not suffering from a bodily illness. It is in vain that you have wasted your money on all those doctors. It is a demon that is tormenting you. The man said to him, Pray for me to be free of it, elder. And Father Filaritos answered, I will pray for you, my child, but you must fast as well because that is the only way to get rid of the demon, with prayer and fasting. That is what our Christ said. The tormented man did as he was told, and became well with the fasting that he himself did, and with the prayer and fasting of the holy elder. Towards the end, Father Filaritos had spiritually matured, to the extent that he knew not only the hearts and minds of people, but even what they had in their pockets. One day a clergyman called at the monastery of Constantinitu to get the elder's blessing and advice. He wanted to stay on the holy mountain. After answering the clergyman's questions, the ones he brought up, as well as the ones he did not even mention, Father Filaritos told him what to do with the money he had in his pockets and the exact amount he had. The clergyman was utterly amazed and glorified God that in our own times he had made the acquaintance of an elder like the elders of bygone days. When he was elderly, Father Filaritos became slightly ill because his bodily strength had deserted him. Out of love for him, the fathers of the monastery forced him to go to a hospital in Thessaloniki for tests. The elder had no idea he was in a hospital because apart from his exhausted state, he also felt dizzy from the journey. When he came to, he saw the nurses coming towards him, drawing near to his bed. When Father Filaritos saw their white uniforms and their little caps, he thought they were angels with halos 
and hid his face under the sheet out of reverence. Everyone around him was stunned and in awe at the purity of the elder. Father Simeon, a former abbot from the monastery of Philotheo, who was also at his bedside then, told me about it. Then they took him back to his place of repentance, where he rested in the Lord. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Peter Petrakis Elder Peter was born in Lemnos in 1891. It seems that his family, though poor, was of noble stock. He was completely illiterate, but had acquired divine enlightenment through the intense philotimo of his spiritual struggles. From an early age, Georgios, as he was known in the world, had lived the life of a monastic. However, he received the angelic habit after the age of 30 from a venerable elder at the Kelly of Righteous Nilos and was given the name of St. Peter the Athenite, who's commemorated the 12th of June. Elder Peter had a natural simplicity and great faith, which were apparent from the first years of his spiritual endeavors. He once told me that right after he had become a monk, his elder had fallen seriously ill. He was naturally very upset because he felt like a little child in danger of losing his mother while still being breastfed. He lost no time, however. He went straight to the chapel, and with all his childlike simplicity and reverence, said to righteous Nilos, Now listen, righteous Nilos, if you don't make my elder well straight away, I won't light your visual oil lamp. And oh, the miracle, the elder at once became well, got up, went into the chapel to thank the saint, and lit the vigil oil lamp himself. The elder lived a good many years and benefited Father Peter spiritually. Later, when he was living alone, he went through some rough times at the beginning because he had been influenced by some monks who were rather indiscreetly zealous. He had pulled down the flagpoles at the monastery of the Great Lavra as a sign of protest against King Georgios II, whom they had said was a mason. He was charged with slander by the civil authorities and sentenced to three years of exile on the island of Spinelonga, where he looked after lepers. He repented for his action, however, and he later told me, I acted like a worldly man, Father Paisios, not like a monk. I was badly damaged spiritually during the time of my exile because I couldn't carry out my monastic duties. On his return from exile, he traveled together with a monk who told me that Father Peter preached repentance to people and told them, <coughs> We have to repent or else God will punish us. He will let the atheists be informed by God about the great evil who are since that great rending of the Civil War, 1949 years before it happened. When he returned from exile to the holy mountain of Athos, of righteous Nilos, because there was too much hustle or bustle. A lot of people came by and he could not find any. He went down to Katunakia and lived on various tip belonging to the skeet of little St. Anne. could not be seen at all from the road and only a long piece of wood which people took for a fence. Around him held him in great devotion, because he himself they all used to call him Petrakis or Little Pete, because he was short and thin and had a childlike simplicity and sensitivity. When you saw him with his fine, bright face bowing low when he spoke, 
he was indeed just like a little boy. He retained his childlike character until his 67th year when he rested in the Lord. Although the fathers would approach him in order to gain some benefit, he himself would avoid them because he was shy and blushed. When he absolutely could not get away, he would reply with a few but very enlightened lightning words. He found contact with people difficult, which is why he remained in his kelly and spoke constantly with God in unceasing prayer. When the fathers went and knocked at his door, he would not open. If they left him many blessings, he would likewise leave them outside. The fathers would see that everything they had left him had rotted, and the next time they came by, they would not bring him anything. Instead, they would bring blessings to other fathers. The brethren living nearby would say to Elder Peter, It is not right for you not to accept blessings. He answered, Blessed Father, I have enough. Glory be to God. Why should I deprive other elders of things they are in need of? Through his great asceticism, the elder had done away with almost all human needs and really lived like an incarnate angel, not only in a formal way, by wearing the angelic habit. He always fasted until the ninth hour. In other words, he would eat a dried rusk after vespers and occupied himself with the Jesus prayer and making prostrations day and night. Even in his sleep, he said the prayer, and when he awoke, he continued the rest of the prayer. When he lay down a little, his body fell asleep, but his soul was awake, praying. The Jesus prayer had become self-activating, and he often said to me, I also hear angelic chanting that is so sweet I can hardly stand on my feet because of that sweet heavenly melody. That sweet state of being nourished him mentally and physically, which is why he did not need many things for his upkeep. The little he needed he provided for with his handiwork because he plated Kumbuskini or collected mountain tea from the slopes of Athos. These he would give in return for some dried rusks. If anyone insisted on giving him a blessing, he would return the gift twofold in a polite way, giving either mountain tea or kombuskini. Despite the fact that he did not take care of himself and was all skin and bones, he still undertook great spiritual struggles, and one could clearly see the grace of God which strengthened him. You could not see a stomach on Elder Peter, just a hollow. If, this habit, if his habit happened to become a little undone on his chest, you could count his ribs which looked like rods of flattened reeds. I have known many ascetics, but there was something different about Elder Peter. A divine sweetness seemed to be sketched on his face. His spiritual hive had filled to overflowing with spiritual honey. If anyone asked him, how do you get on in your Kelly Elder? He would reply, Glory be to God, I wouldn't swap my Kelly, my sweet Kanu, Katuni, Katunakia for all the palaces in the world. He would leave his sweet Katuni, usually every six months to visit the monasteries of the Holy Mountain, to give them his handiwork and be given in return dried rusks for half a year. You can imagine, of course, the size of Elder Peter's bag, and therefore how many rusks, his sole food normally, 
he ate in the course of six months. So every six months, he would call in at the monastery where I was living to see me. The last time he came, I was away, unfortunately, and he waited outside in a corner because he was too shy to go in. I came across him in the afternoon after he had been waiting for me for four hours. As soon as he saw me, he came running over like a happy little boy, even though he was twice my age. We went to my cell, and though I wanted to look after him a bit and get him to rest, he would not consent and refused in a very sweet way so as not to hurt my feelings. He asked for a little hot water and put in two sprigs of mountain tea, which he had with him, and drank it. When I insisted that he eat something, he said, Forgive me, Father Paisios, but I want to prepare for Holy Communion on June 12th, St. Peter the Athenite's Day. I came to say goodbye, and so that we can ask each other's forgiveness, because I will be dying soon, which is why I can't take you on as my disciple. Forgive me since I will be dying. Now I found that strange. Just like that, while he was perfectly well, he was talking to me about dying. After our discussion and the advice he had been giving me for two and a half hours, however, I began to believe it. Since he stood up the whole time he was giving me advice, I asked him to sit. He would not, however, and said, We shouldn't talk of the word of God sitting down. Even though he was completely exhausted, having walked with a fully loaded bag for nine hours. That last time he would give his handiwork in exchange for the necessities for his burial and the celebration of a divine liturgy at the place of his repentance, the Kelly of St. Nilos. Then he would receive forgiveness and say goodbye to his few friends who were scattered throughout the holy mountain. Since it was his last visit, he told me more things than at any other time, perhaps to give me greater pleasure and lessen the great grief I would later feel over losing him. Before he started giving me advice, I had asked him about the difficulties of my monastic task, which involved being with lay people almost all day, and involuntarily having to listen to a whole host of dirty stories. Elder Peter answered me, Father Paisios, we should look upon those stories with good thoughts. The elder had been purified and saw everything clearly, because there was absolutely no sin within him, but rather Christ himself dwelt within him. I also asked him whether a certain incident was from God or from the devil to lead me astray. He answered that it was from God and went on to tell me this, Father Paisios, I constantly experience divine states like that. When I am visited by divine grace, my heart is sweetly warmed by the love of God, and the strange light illumines me inwardly as well as outwardly, because my Kelly is also illumined. Then I take off my cap and humbly bow my head and say to Christ, My Christ, pierce my heart with the lance of your loving kindness. Sweet tears of gratitude stream from my eyes, and I glorify God. That's when I feel my face lighting up. At times like that, Father Paisios, everything stops because I feel Christ very close to me and I can no longer ask for anything. Even the prayer stops. The Combuschini can't go around. 
so that I would not misunderstand him and abandon the Combeschini. Although I had not reached such a heavenly state, he told me about the following event. The Combeschini, Father Paisios, must never be allowed to slip from your hands because it is the weapon of the monk and has great power. I once made the sign of the cross with my Combeschini over a possessed person in Carriers, and the man was set free at once. I had also heard about that incident from Father Evmenios, who had been present at the time and had seen it. Elder Peter had set out his Combeschini and Mountain Tea for sale at Carriers when he saw a man tormented by an evil spirit. The people around him were unable to do anything to help him. Elder Peter got up very slowly, gathered up his handiwork, and noiselessly approached the man to make the sign of the cross over him with a combeschini. Then he quickly went away before anyone could see him. Most all the people there simply saw a possessed man suddenly healed and glorified God when they realized that there are saints even in our own age. But not all of them managed to see little righteous Peter, except for two or three of them. The elder was, of course, not known to many people, because he avoided contacts and strove to remain unknown, but everyone had heard about little Pete. If anyone he knew happened to come across him and ask him about something, he would talk about the subject in question with illuminating examples, as if he had translated the Yerantikon. Different examples, certainly, but with the same meaning. Of course, it was easy for people to misunderstand him if they lacked the mystical depth of the fathers of the church. He would say, for example, the prayer of the humble makes God take a tumble. He meant that the prayer of a humble person makes God incline himself to them. Or again, he would say about fasting. If water doesn't fall into the cistern, it dries up and the frogs die. In other words, with fasting, the stomach dries up and the passions die. As I mentioned, he had his own Yarantikon. Among his other virtues, he was distinguished for his great discernment. Because there had been some friction over certain church matters, basically the calendar of saints, he had withdrawn from a fanatical group and from that time on came to the monasteries. Whenever he visited me, he would follow the services from the narthex. When I asked him why he did not go into the main church, he answered, So as not to scandalize anyone, blessed Father, if the zealots see me in the narthex, they will say, Elder Peter is waiting for somebody, and won't be scandalized. And if the fathers of the monastery see me in the narthex, they won't be scandalized either, because they will see I have my bag with me. He had overcome human pettiness, fanaticism, and the like, because he was enlightened by God. He was a zealot in the good sense. He would normally receive Holy Communion once a week, unless there also happened to be a feast in between. He would also attend the Divine Liturgies, which took place around his. He would take only Andiron from the first divine liturgy, said also attend another one. Then he would take If of course you not receive he was such a holy state that he could have received holy communion more often. As I have said, he was always fasting. 
He fasted each day until Vespers and would fast three days, three day fasts for the entirety of each great Lent. Only on weekends did he eat twice a day and use olive oil. He prayed the services on his own with the Combeschini, saying the Jesus prayer for seven hours, apart from his normal rule of praying, which consisted of 700 great prostrations and repeating the Jesus prayer 3,300 times with his Combeschini and small prostrations with the sign of the cross. Of all this, one-third was for himself, one-third for the living, and one-third for all those who had fallen asleep. If he heard of anyone who was in trouble, he would say a separate prayer with prostrations. He also read the Hours, Vespers, and Apodipnon with the Combeschini. Apodipnon is a church service, footnote, it's a church service that follows the evening meal. It means after the supper. In other words, his handiwork was prayer. Even though he was in such a holy state, Elder Peter was so humble that he considered himself a sinner with many passions. At the time when the priest read the gospel, he would take off his cap, go up to the holy or royal doors, and bend his head under the gospel book, so that as he used to say, the evil spirits would leave him. He considered himself to be so worthless and had therefore never taken a disciple. Once when I had begged him, he had agreed to take me as his disciple, but the monastery would not give me a blessing. When Elder Peter came for the last time to tell me he was preparing for the next life and asked my forgiveness for not taking me on as a disciple since he was going to die, it was then that I realized that the will of God was hidden behind the obstacle presented by the elders of the monastery, for God was about to take Elder Peter. It seemed I was not worthy of living with a saint. Even the fact that God judged me worthy of getting to know him for my benefit was in itself too much, considering my sinfulness. If God makes it possible for me to see him in the next life, even from afar, it will be one of his greatest concessions. I shall never forget his final advice and our last parting. Here you see the majesty of God in his saints. As in the case of little righteous Peter, who was not kissed by his friends after his death, but rather while he was still alive, had gone himself to his friends to receive the last kiss. Footnote. After the dismissal of the funeral service, the last kiss takes place when all those in church file past the body. After the farewell, we take up the body and proceed to the burial place. Return to the text. Afterwards, he went on to Caries, obtained the requisites for his burial, and then went to the place of his repentance, the Kelly of St. Nilos. The next day, June 12, a divine liturgy was celebrated since it was his name day, memory of St. Peter the Athenite. The fathers, the ascetics from the surrounding Kalia, had also gathered. After the divine liturgy was over and Elder Peter had received Holy Communion, he went out to fetch water and leukumia from the fathers, for the fathers. As soon as he sat down with them, he closed his eyes and commended his sanctified soul to Christ. The fathers thought he was dozing 
and waited for him to open his eyes so that they could wish him many happy returns for his name day. But when they shook him, they realized he had departed for the heavens and instead wished him a good repose. He fell asleep in the Lord on the 12th of June, the Feast of St. Peter the Athenite, in 1958. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Augustinus Father Augustinus was born in Russia in Aliskoji, Poltava, in 1882. He was known in the world as Anthony Cora. His father, who was called Nicholas, and his mother, Katarina, were both devout people and also brought up their child, Anthony, with reverence and fear of God. Even when he was still young, Anthony had gone to a monastery in Russia where he had lived as a novice. However, a temptation forced him to leave the monastery and his homeland and come to the Paravoli of the Panagia, so that he would feel that his soul was safe from temptations of that sort. As he had related to me, nearly all the monks in that monastery were elderly, so for his communal task they had sent him to help an employee of the monastery with the fishing because the monastery was maintained by fishery. Well, one day the daughter of the employee came and told her father that he had to go home quickly because of some urgent business, so she stayed to help. Temptation overwhelmed the poor girl, however, and without further thought, she threw herself at the novice with sinful intent. At that moment, Anthony became totally bewildered because it was all so sudden. He made the sign of the cross and said, Lord, it is better to drown than to sin, and jumped from the bank into the deep river. But the good Lord, seeing the great heroism of the pure young man, who had acted like a latter-day Saint Martianos to keep himself chaste, kept him above the water so that he did not get wet. He told me, although I dived head first, I don't know how, but I found myself standing upright on the water without even my clothes getting wet. Footnote. The biography of Saint Martinianos we commemorate his name on February 13th, mentions that when he was an ascetic living on a rocky outcropping in the sea, a shipwrecked girl approached the rock on a broken timber and begged him to save her from the sea. The saint first pulled her out of the water to safety on his rock and then after praying, jumped into the sea himself. By divine providence, dolphins came, took St. Martinianos on their backs and carried him to safety ashore. Back to the text. At that moment, he felt such an inner peace with such an inexpressible sweetness that it completely dispelled every sinful thought and every carnal stimulation that the girl had earlier provoked in him with her lewd gestures. When the girl saw the young Anthony standing upright on the water, she began to cry, repenting of her error and moved by the remarkable miracle. After that, the novice left immediately for the monastery and in tears begged the abbot to give him a blessing to go to the holy mountain because he was spiritually weak and was afraid to remain in the world. He did not report anything to the abbot concerning the behavior of the girl, however, so that nothing should be heard to her detriment. Nor did he speak of the miracle that had happened to him, 
but merely deplored his own self. Of course, this was the great miracle, to my way of thinking. In other words, that he took the error upon himself and covered up for the girl who was to blame, as well as his heroic resistance to such a great temptation at that age. Because it was not at all difficult for God, who upholds the whole universe with his little finger, to hold the novice above the waters of the river. The abbot then yielded to his supplications. Naturally, he could hardly prevent him, but felt sorry that such a promising novice was to be lost to the brotherhood. Anthony came to the Holy Mountain in 1908. After he had visited a number of monasteries and Kalia in the Paravoli of the Panagia, he settled in the Kelly of the Precious Cross, belonging to the monastery of Karakalu. It was there that he became a monk in 1910 and was given the name Augustinus. In 1943, he left for the Kelly of Philotheo Monastery, dedicated to the entrance of the Theotokos, in order to find greater quietude. He struggled there with great Philotimo until his old age, without ever going out into the world again. It was in 1950 that I first heard about Elder Augustinos, but I was not given the chance to get to know him personally. Everyone, though, spoke of his sanctity. In 1955, when I went back to the monastery of Philotheo, I went to see him at his kelly on the second day, but unfortunately he was not there. I left a few things outside his door and went back to the monastery, taking care that no one should see me so as not to make the fathers think I was going to the kellya with things and so on. The next day in the afternoon, Elder Augustinos came to the monastery and asked for me. Where's the monk Paisios? The fathers were taken aback and said to him, We hardly know him ourselves yet. How do you know him? And they showed him to my cell. As soon as I opened the door, he made a full prostration and said, Your blessing. Then he said, God forgive you for the blessings you left for me. Out of his woolen shoulder bag, he then took a handkerchief in which were wrapped seven small peaches, no bigger than wild plums in size. They were from a half-withered peach tree he had at his kelly. I had wanted to hide from the elder the fact that I had left a blessing for him, but he said, I saw you from the skeet of Prophet Elijah, the Russian skeet. The skeet of Prophet Elijah is about four hours away from the kelly of Elder Augustinos. The elder had the gift of insight. For God, of course, there are no short or long distances. Now that the opportunity has presented itself, I should like to refer to a similar instance of the same gift. His neighbor, Deacon Benjamin, had seen the slaughter of the Tsar's family in his own keli as clearly as if he had been watching television. It was some time later they learned that it was on that very day that the Tsar's family had been slaughtered by the communists. It is certain that Elder Augustinos would also have been able to see as far, since he had a spiritual television, the gift of insight, which he had acquired through the purity of his soul, humbleness, and love. 
Since the elder felt great sympathy for suffering animals, anyone who had an old or maimed animal would just leave it within the bounds of his keli without even ask, asking him and go away. The keli of Elder Agustinos became an asylum for all the animals of the area from the monasteries of Caracelu and Philotheo as far as the one of Iveron. The poor elder would take his skith and cut hay all summer so that the old and maimed animals of the lay people could get through the winter. If he came across some abandoned old animal, he would take it to his asylum as well. Whenever he encountered anyone on his way somewhere, he would make a full-length prostration and say, Your blessing. He did not take into account whether it was a monk or a priest, old or young, a layman or clergyman, because he himself had great humbleness and considered everyone greater than himself, whom he considered the least of men. One day, as he made a prostration to a layman, a theologian saw him and was taken somewhat aback and said, Do you make prostrations to laymen? Elder Augustinos answered, Yes, because they have the grace of holy baptism. There were no limits to the great love and humbleness of Elder Augustinos. Once he told me, the devil appeared in his cell in the form of a ferocious dog spitting flames from its mouth. It leapt at him to choke him, because as it said, it felt searing pain due to his prayers. Elder Augustinos grabbed it and flung it against the wall, crying, Evil devil, why do you fight against the creatures of God? The elder went on to say, The devil was strong, but I am not exactly feeble myself, and I had pinned him against I had him pinned against the wall. But my conscience troubled me afterwards about hitting the devil. I waited worriedly for the morning light so that I could go to my spiritual father and confess that I had hit the devil. As soon as it was light, I went to Provata, a one-and-a-half-hour walk, to see my spiritual father and make my confession. My spiritual father was very lenient and didn't impose any penance at all, but told me to receive Holy Communion. I was so overjoyed that I prayed with my combeskini all night long and then went to the Divine Liturgy and received Holy Communion. When the priest was putting the Holy Communion spoon into my mouth, I saw the Holy Communion as a piece of meat and blood, and I had to chew it in order to swallow it. At the same time, I felt such great exultation that I could not bear it. Sweet tears were streaming from my eyes, and my whole head felt lit up like a lamp. I left quickly so that the other fathers would not see me, and alone in my cell, I read the thanksgiving prayers for the Holy Eucharist. The elder's countenance was luminous, for he was overshadowed by the grace of God. Just looking at him was enough to make you forget every care, for he spread joy with his inner goodness. His outer clothing, his patched-up habit, was worse than the clothes that gardeners use to make scarecrows to keep the birds away. If anyone happened to give him something good, he gave it at once to someone else. His keli was a meeting place for the workers who carried loads of timber from the monasteries to the landing dock. Footnote 
The Athenite monasteries each have a small harbor with a boat, dock, quay, cells, and storage depots. Back to the text. When the workers needed anything, they would go to the Kali of Elder Augustinos and take it without even asking. They often took whatever he had, and the fathers would then find him prostrate with exhaustion. The only solution was for the monastery to supply him with a little flour for his gruel. Elder Augustinos had acquired an old frying pan and would need some flour with a little water and salt and then cook it like pita bread. That was both his bread and his meal. When there was a dispensation for olive oil, he would dip a feather into the oil and make the sign of the cross on the pita bread. That was how he observed the dispensation for feast days. Some of the fathers used to tease the elder a little and say to him, What do you eat, Elder Augustinos? And he would reply, I eat pancakes all the time. If the elder was given a sardine and brine, he would keep it as a treat for a visitor. He would take the head of the sardine for himself and give the rest of the fish to his guest, overjoyed that he had treated him with fish. He always did things like that and deprived himself, but Christ continuously filled him with his divine grace. All the fathers in the area and the laymen loved him greatly, especially the fathers of the monastery of Philotheo, who begged him to come to the monastery so they could look after him in his old age. He had already begun to lose his sight, but the elder was worried about what would happen to the, to the decrepit and maimed animals he looked after and would not agree for that reason. In the end, God blessed them. The elders of the monastery decided to take in both him and all of his decrepit animals, and thus his mind was set at ease. In the monastery, the fathers looked after him very well, which he considered as a great blessing from the Panagia. Out of gratitude and with his eyes brimming with tears of joy, he constantly chanted, It is meat indeed. The presence of Elder Augustinos was a blessing for the monastery and of great benefit to the elderly fathers in the infirmary because Elder Augustinos was not only visited by men, but also by saints and angels, and even by, not by our Panagia. Whenever the elders saw our Panagia or the saints in the infirmary, and that the other fathers were lying down or resting, he would get up very upset. He would go and shake them to get them up and say, The Panagia! Or if he saw an angel, The angel! They, of course, did not see anything, but realized that something was happening and would immediately get up and stand there in reverence. The monk on duty, however, thought these were just delusions and would tell him off, saying, You leave the elders in peace, you and your flights of fancy. Nonetheless, the elder continued shaking them, unable to contain himself out of reverence. Whenever the fathers went to see him, before they could ask him how he was doing, Elder Augustinos would ask them, How are my mules and asses? They are fine, they would answer, and the elder would be happy. And how are you, Elder Augustinos? Very well, thank God. And so cheerful, with his great goodness, glorifying God and praying unceasingly, he spent, or rather lived, the life of paradise in the Paravoli of the Panagia. 
Within him he had Christ. His heart was paradise, and he was counted worthy to see angels and saints, even our Panagia, in this life, before continuing onward to rejoice eternally. At the moment when Elder Augustinos' soul departed, his face flashed like lightning three times. God saw to it that the monk attending the infirmary was present, and he was both amazed and convinced of the divine visitations the elder had received. Elder Augustinos fell asleep in the Lord on March 27, 1965, at the age of 83. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Father Georgios the Anchorite Father Georgios was born in Sakia in Scythonia, around 1922. He was known in the world by the name of John. He was given the name Georgios at the time he received the angelic habit, when he was spiritually reborn in the neighboring peninsula of Athos in the Paraboli of the Panagia. Father Georgios did indeed live like a true bird of the air on the holy mountain beneath God's heavenly dome, since he had no calivi of his own like the other fathers. Liberated from vanity by the virtue of being without possessions and enslaved by the love of God, he wandered around Athos like Christ's good little tramp. All he owned in the world were the tattered clothes he wore, summer and winter alike. He had broad rags wrapped around his legs in place of socks in order to stop the little blood that he did have from collecting in his feet because of all the standing he did at prayer and all the walking he did over the hill and dale, so that he would remain unknown to people. On the one hand, his soul became increasingly united with God. On the other hand, his clothes became increasingly ragged, although they seemed like wings because the elder had the grace of God. From a distance, anyone seeing Father Giorgio's eating blackberries among the bushes would have taken him for some kind of large eagle. He would get through the summer on the odd blackberry and wild fig. Winters were difficult, however, when there was hardly anything to be had. The arbutus berries and wild chestnuts finish around November, and then all that remains are acorns and the occasional green plant. He only ever cooked food on the feast days of the monasteries on the northeastern side of the Holy Mountain, where he would make his appearance from time to time. He would usually arrive on the day before the eve of the feast and help in the kitchen and with cleaning the monastery in general. Nobody, of course, had any difficulty at all in telling him what to do because they thought he was mentally handicapped. However, when one got to know him better, he would see that it was he himself who was mentally handicapped and that Father Georgios was enlightened by God. He was always more than willing to do other people's bidding. One would shout, Georgie, come here, and then another, Georgie, come here. He would reply, may it be blessed, and run over. This went from morning to night. Nobody called him Father Georgios, just Georgie. Despite the fact that he was exhausted by his work, he never went to the guest house to rest in the evening, but would lie down outside the narthex of the church stretched out like a corpse on the marble, with his arms folded across his chest. That was his rule, winter and summer, and always in the same clothes. 
All of the seasons were the same for Father Georgios, because he lived ever in a state of paradise, and the love of God would on some occasions warm him and on others cool him. At a time when you would come across him lying down, suddenly he would leap up as if an alarm had rung and pray, standing stock still for hours at a time as if he were a statue. When I first met him in the Cenobium, I was a novice. Because I had worldly criteria, I thought just like all the laymen and certain of the fathers that he was mad. In fact, on one occasion, I too said that he was mad and was overheard by Father Germanos, the most elderly and virtuous monk of the monastery. He sternly rebuked me and said, He is a saint but pretends to be a fool for Christ. From that moment on, I held him in great veneration. I watched him closely and discovered for myself that he really did have sanctity. When he went to the monasteries after receiving Holy Communion, he would stay until the afternoon of the feast to help and then would leave without taking any blessing. This is why he had neither a bag nor pockets, but lived like a bird in the parvoli of the Panagia. I never saw such self-denial in any other father. Father Georgios had placed himself entirely in the hands of God, which is why he felt the great assurance which Christ gave him, as well as such abundant joy that he was unable to contain it. His heart, having taken wing out of divine eros, made him wander around the mountains. In other words, he had taken to the hills, but in the good sense, he was always joyful. He would often say some things which those who did not understand thought were gibberish, but they had their meaning. Occasionally, when he met people who could detect his asceticism, he said, food, life, fasting, death, food, life, fasting, death. Naturally, anyone hearing those words would form the opinion that he was a glutton. He would also give the same impression to people who happened to see him eating in the refectory by deliberately eating in a greedy way. Especially if there were eggs on the table, he would smear them in his beard, and since he never washed, gave the impression that he was always eating eggs. If anyone asked him about spiritual matters, he would give very enlightened replies, but when he saw that they admired him, he would start to confuse matters and muddy the waters. He particularly stressed humility and obedience. This is why, despite the fact that his own frame of mind was subject to the will of God and the will of other people, he still felt the need for holy submission and obedience. He therefore went again as a disciple to look after a senile elder whose brain had been affected by meningitis. His purpose was to serve him and to cut off his own will even more completely through the indiscretions of his elder. I saw Father Georgios with a bag for the first time during the period when he was living as a disciple with his sick elder. In the end, the elder threw him out. He had earned a little reward with his obedience and again took to the hills. As the years went by, Father Georgios matured even more. Some people got wind of this, so he began to create disturbances, even with officialdom. Once Father Giorgio saw a paramilitary officer lose his temper, so he gave him a couple of quick slaps. This sufficed, of course, for people to form the impression that he was mad, 
so they took him to the lunatic asylum. The doctors examined him carefully, but could find nothing wrong with him, and sent him back at once. That was enough, however, for Father Giorgios to be certified as a madman, and that was what enabled him to move about with even greater freedom. In this holy manner, the man of God made mockery of the vanity of the world. We do not know where he is now. I have tried to find out, but no one knows. Has he left for heaven? Is he still alive? In any case, all trace of him has been lost. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Philaritos, one of the inconspicuous fathers who struggled with great Philotimo in the Paravoli of the Panagia, in order to achieve the desired goal, that is the salvation of his soul, was Elder Philaritos, the friend of virtue. Footnote. A play on the elder's name, which in Greek means precisely a friend of virtue. Back to the text. His earthly homeland was Transylvania in Romania. He was born in the year of the Lord, 1892, and at his baptism was given the name Nicholas. His father was called John and his mother Maria, while their family name was Dusas. So Nicholas Dusas, as he was known in the world, came to the Holy Mountain in 1912 at the age of 20, tonsured a monk at the Cali of St. Hypatios of Vatopedi Monastery. He was given the name Philaritos. He stayed there for eight years and in 1920 went to the Stavernikitan Cali of St. Andrew in Kapsala, where he stayed with Elder Modestos, whom he looked after in his old age and whose blessing he received. In that Cali, he continued and completed the good fight. Footnote, 1 Timothy 6.12. Back to the text. Since 1956, I had been hearing of the spiritual state of the Venerable Elder from many of the fathers, particularly from his disciple, Father Bartholomew, who used to come to the monastery of Philotheo. But it was not until 1968, when I was living close by, at the Stavernakitan Kali of the Precious Cross, that I was counted worthy to meet this most devout elder. Whenever I went, I would see the elder standing outside with one hand resting on the rail and the other holding his kamboskini. He suffered greatly with dys- dyspne, which was why he would usually go outdoors. When I asked him, How are you, elder? He would answer, Glory be to God. What would you like me to bring you? Our Panagia provides me with what I need. He never accepted anything. Even if someone left something for him secretly, it distressed the elders Philotimo because he had great spiritual exactitude. In other words, he would have to pray a great deal because he overvalued the things people left for him. If something was worth five drachmas, he would reckon it to be twenty, and he would then feel obligated to say the Jesus prayer 2,000 times with his kambaskini, with small prostrations each time, for the person who had left the blessing for him. I once begged the elder to accept a small blessing, but he refused. I can't, I can't. I don't have enough time for the kambaskini and the prostrations. I have my own spiritual duties, as well as those of Father Bartholomew's, who is ill, and of him Christ will only ask patience. Father Bartholomew, his disciple, had suffered for years from a severe form of Parkinson's disease, 
and trembled all over. Elder Felaritos, besides undertaking all his spiritual duties for him, also took care of him, despite the fact that he himself was an old man of 78. He cared for him for 15 whole years, until he himself fell ill and was bedridden. The veins in his legs had burst by then because of the many hours he would stand in prayer, and fluid ran from his socks into his shoes and from his shoes onto the floor. Since he also suffered from dyspnea, he used to sit in a corner so as not to fall over wrapped in old blankets. The fathers visited him, of course, but sometimes they all came together, or then again no one came, because each one would think that another had gone, and the other would think the same. So in the end nobody went, and the two fathers were left without help. On such days they would certainly feel divine comfort to a greater extent, since they lacked human comfort. There was, however, another reason. Both had noble love, for each thought always of the other, which is why Christ kept both of them in mind, as did our Panagia, and they were therefore comforted in a divine way. Elder Felaritos and his disciple, Father Bartholomew, who was almost paralyzed, had been invited to go not only to monasteries, but to Kelia as well, to be looked after in their old age. They would not agree, however. The thought occurs to me that they had experienced many miraculous events in that Kelia of theirs, and did not have the heart to desert a holy place, but also that they did not want to become a burden to others, since they also had noble souls. One day when I was going to visit them again, as I approached the Kali of Elder Filaretos, I sensed an indescribable fragrance. As soon as I opened the door to his Kali, the fragrance became stronger. But what did I see? There on the floor was the poor elder, who was crumpled over in such a way that he could neither get up nor breathe. I got him up, gradually he began to breathe and made a sign to me to cover him. He had hardly any blood left in him, and he was very cold. Even though humanly speaking the floor and the whole of the elder should have been stinking from the fluid that continually ran from his legs, everything was permeated by a beautiful smell on account of his fragrant soul. When I saw him in that state, I begged Father Bartholomew to remain in the Kelly to help them, but he would not agree. He told me to come back the next day, and so I was forced to return to my Kali. That night, however, what should happen? While I was praying the midnight office with my Kamaskini, what did I see? I saw Elder Falaritos, looking like a twelve-year-old child, with a shining face, depart for heaven within a heavenly light. I realized then that his purified soul had rested in the Lord. It was June 1st, 1975. He fell asleep at the age of 83. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Bartholomew was then looked after in his old age by the fathers of the monastery of Stavronikita. May they receive a fitting reward because he was worthy of their best care Yet, for yet another reason. He had come from Romania to the Paravoli of the Panagia to practice spiritual asceticism from the age of 15, while other children his age were still playing worldly games at home. Father Bartholomew had also served for a good many years in the leper community, which was on the property of the monastery of Iveron, 
Mayor Panagia, the Portetisa, who also tends to lepers, tend to the salvation of my leprous soul as well. Amen. Elder Ephraim the Wretch. Opposite the Kali of Elder Hypatios, the Wallachian or Vlachian, Kalia, above Katanakia, there can be seen a cave, which, so the fathers tell, was a robber's den during the Turkish occupation. The cave was transformed by Elder Ephraim into a divine cave of Bethlehem because he sanctified it with his holy life. Elder Ephraim was from Thessaly. He had a sensitive, humble soul and a manly fighting spirit. Father Hirothios and Father Makarios from Karasia used to say that Elder Ephraim was like one of the Abbas of ancient times in Nitria in Thebaid. The venerable elders of St. Basil's said the same, as did their fellow ascetics in the surrounding area. Everyone acknowledged his virtues, particularly his great humility and unobtrusiveness, whereas he called himself a miserable wretch. Well-intentioned people who inconspicuously struggle will understand a great deal from one or two instances which I will relate. Since the fathers used to go down and buy things, food and so on, or receive blessings from monasteries, dried rusks, or garden produce, Elder Ephraim would also go down at night and fill his bag with empty food tins which had been thrown into the rubbish holes. Then during the day he would make his way up to his hermitage with his load, thus giving the impression to others that he was carrying food. When he got to his cave, he would tip out the empty tin cans from his bag and leave them outside the door to his cave so that visitors would see them and think he was a glutton, though in fact he was a great faster. Later he actually caught tuberculosis due to his great asceticism and the dampness of the cave. Therefore he was forced to build himself a little dry stone calivi in a sunny area at a short distance from his cave. It was just big enough to hold him. He kept to the same rule there. He secretly carried empty food tins he had gathered from the rubbish holes and left them outside his door. The people who saw them and did not know what was really happening used to say, What is this fellow up to here? He has eaten down to the last tin. Whenever the fathers gave him a blessing, he would accept it with pleasure, but then at night would go and leave it outside the Kalivya of the of fathers who were in need or sick and would also look after them. He had great self-denial and relied on God's providence. Once when he had been snowbound in his cave, the good Lord sent him food with a man who after giving him a bag of blessings disappeared before Elder Ephraim, Ephraim's eyes. The elder glorified God and got through the whole winter on that blessing from God. Despite all that I have said, Elder Ephraim was very self-condemnatory, and unfortunately certain people believed everything he said while he was condemning himself. Humbly and inconspicuously, he ended his arduous struggle for the love of Christ and fell asleep in the Lord in 1962. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Constantine the Fool for Christ The innocent and silent fool for Christ, Elder Constantine Angelis, was born in Kalinzi near Dodoni in Epiros on February 10, 1898. 
His father was called Stavros and his mother Anthula. Little is known about the early years of his monastic life, but what we do know is that he had been at the holy monastery of Dionysiu as a novice. For years, one would always see him making his appearance around Caries. He lived in a ruined cali of the monastery of Kutlomusio. It had formerly been the monastic house of the Philadelphia of St. George's. There, in a corner of the ruined building, where less water dripped in from the roof and slightly less draft came in from the broken windows and doors, he had some ragged blankets. He resembled an eagle in its nest. Outwardly, Elder Constantine did not appear to be what he was, because only his hat and beard showed that he was a monk. He was always wrapped in an old greatcoat, with a piece of rope tied tightly around the middle, and so he looked like a layman. Inwardly, however, he was clothed in the grace of the angelic habit, which was depicted on his face. Seeing the elder from a distance, you would take him for a poor, miserable man or for a madman. But from close up, when you saw his shining face, you realized that some mystery was hidden within that blessed man. Then it was not Elder Constantine you would think crazy, but all those who considered him to be so. Although he lived in the conditions to which I have referred, neglecting himself totally and not even washing, Elder Kostas, as he was known, was nevertheless clean because he lived like a winged creature of the air. He rarely spoke to people but constantly conversed with God in ceaseless prayer. He was often caught up in theoria, and when he came to, he would make certain movements with his hand to, quote, muddy the waters, and then leave without saying a word. Of course, his behavior was open to misinterpretation by lay people. Even when he told them something prophetic, they thought that it was also some kind of nonsense. Sometimes when those around him were talking and Elder Constantine was not paying attention because he was praying and his mind was on God, they would again think he was being absent-minded. You had to question Elder Constantine many times and insist on an answer, and even then all you would get were two or three muttered words, but prophetic ones. He was once visited by a young man who wanted to become a monk but kept finding obstacles on all sides, since the devil was envious of him. As soon as Elder Constantine saw the young man in the distance, he called out, John, read St. John the Damascene. See what he went through. John was surprised when he heard that. However, when he read the life of St. John the Damascene and learned of how he had suffered under, the harsh, under his harsh and indiscreet elder, but also of the great patience of the saint, who endured until God spoke. Then John also showed patience, settled down, and made progress in the monastic life. Once three fathers came across Elder Constantine quite by accident and asked him whether they ought to go to a certain monastery. He did not answer. One of them kept on asking, and then Elder Constantine muttered a few things. At that time, the words of Elder Constantine seemed incoherent, of course, but a few years later, his prophecy came true. Elder Constantine had inner purity, which was why he could see so clearly from a distance. Unfortunately, some of us wretched people considered this, quote, man of God wretched, since he lived among ruins. In fact, it was there in the ruins that he continually built up his soul, and the soul, as Christ told us, 
is worth more than the whole world itself. As I have mentioned, in one corner of the ruins he had his nest with his tattered blankets and beside him a psalter in the Book of Hours. His personal effects consisted of a small food tin with a piece of wire for a handle. That was his only possession. Every Saturday, he would usually drop in at two of the monastery houses in Carriers, and the fathers would put some of their leftovers in his tin. He would call in silently, but never ask for anything. He had nobility. If the others were busy, he would leave without getting anything. Now and again, he would go past the grocers as well, and like a sparrow, take five or six olives in his hand and leave. The grocers considered this a blessing. They loved Elder Costas. If anyone secretly put any money into his pocket, he would just as secretly leave it at a grocer's and take off. So Elder Costas lived virtuously in the Paravoli of the Panagia, like an innocent lamb. Unfortunately, however, eleven years ago, in 1969, the authorities sent this man of God to a lunatic asylum because many visiting Europeans thought he was crazy given how he appeared in Carriers. When the doctors in the clinic examined him, they could find nothing wrong. He was more than fine, but we modern superficial people who judge others according to their appearance continued to condemn him. Although they found he was perfectly healthy, they sent him from the lunatic asylum to a home for the elderly. There in Thessaloniki, because he suddenly found himself in a worldly environment, he took to a corner and said the Jesus prayer, tears as big as beads continually rolling down his cheeks. When I found out about the hardship Elder Kostas had gone through and that he was in a home for the elderly, I asked the secretary to take good care of him. Of course, the home for the elderly was better than the lunatic asylum, but as good as that was, the Paravoli of the Panagia was better than all the palaces in the world for the peace-loving monk Elder Constantine. The poor elder wondered what had happened and asked the secretary, Why have they brought me here? So the fool for Christ passed the remainder of his life there, tormented by us, the worldly wise. It is not important where Elder Costas fell asleep in the Lord, or whether he did so in the home for the elderly and not on the holy mountain. What matters is that Elder Constantine, the very wise fool for Christ, will have awoken in paradise. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Father Savas of the Monastery of Esfigmenu one of Father Tikhon's dearest friends was the very devout Father Savas, who prayed without ceasing and had indeed reached a very advanced spiritual state. At the age of 14, when he was but a child, Father Savas left his parents and his home in Philippiata and shuttered himself in the Paravoli of the Panagia, not to play games but to struggle. And he really did intrepidly, daringly struggle. He became an athlete of Christ and was awarded the victor's crown. The reason he left the world, according to what he himself told me, was the life of St. John Calivitis, the hut-dweller, who ignited his heart with the sweet flame of the love of Christ. Thus he came to the holy monastery of Esfigmenu on the holy mountain. Father Savas struggled with great Philotimo from his youth until his old age, without regard for himself which is why he always thought about others and how he could succor each one of them. After an arduous asceticism of many years, 
it followed that he was stricken with certain bodily ailments and had problems with his health. The athlete of Christ rejoiced over his pains with patience, recalling the holy martyrs and glorifying God. If I asked him, how's your health doing? He would answer, well, thank God, I don't suffer at all compared with the holy martyrs, just as I have done nothing compared with the holy fathers. Although, in fact, he never omitted his spiritual duties until his old age, when his bodily strength had left him and the pains became even more intense. Father Savas was always cheerful in his pain and constantly said, Glory be to God. Out of their love for him, the fathers of the monastery took him to a clinic in Athens for tests, and he obeyed like a good Cenobite monk. But the peace-loving Father Savas was more troubled by the worldly hubbub than by the pains from his illness and begged the fathers to take him back to his place of repentance, the Paravali of the Panagia. The fathers agreed and took him temporarily to the holy monastery of St. Irene Chrysophilantu so that he could recover a little and afterward continue on to the holy mountain. One evening, however, the monastery was suffused with an indescribable fragrance and the abbess was unable to explain it. They soon realized the fragrance was coming from the cell where Father Savas was staying. When they opened the door, the whole place was filled with the sweet scent, and they discovered that Father Savas had given up his spirit. They realized that the aroma was coming from the fragrant soul of Father Savas. Then the fathers came and took him back to his place of repentance. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Elder Trifon. In 1978, Elder Trifon, the athlete of Christ, ended his spiritual contest on Athos. He had conquered vanity and his sanctified soul had departed to heaven for eternity. Elder Trifon had come from his homeland, Romania, in 1910, when he was 25 years old, planting himself in the Paravoli of the Panagia, high up on the peak of Kapsala, next to Elder Michael. His elder, Elder Michael, was a very devout and traditional monk. He was, we might say, like one of the old Abbas. He lived very ascetically and provided the few things he needed for his upkeep from his simple handiwork. He made ladles. If anyone gave him a blessing, he would accept it, but would also reciprocate apart from praying continually for the specific person. Once he had sent Father Trifon, his new disciple then, to a monastery to deliver their handiwork and to also call on the monastery gardener so as to give him a ladle and ask for a cabbage in return. The gardener, though, because he was in a bad temper, something had upset him, tossed him a cabbage stalk with a couple of useless leaves on it and went on with his work. Father Trifon took it without saying a word and set off for Kapsala. He was thinking all along the road about his elder, who was an old man then, and what sort of cabbage he would eat. His elder, on the other hand, when he saw the stalk with the two leaves on it, started thinking about what his disciple would eat. He told him to light a fire beneath the pot of water. The elder then took the stalk, put it in the pot, and made the sign of the cross over it. Shortly afterwards, he sent Father Trifon to lift the pot off the heat. What do you think I saw, he told me, a white head of cabbage in the pot. It seems that his elder was also a saintly man because it's otherwise inexplicable. In 1917, during the Great Famine, Father Trifon had gone out to Chakidiki, 
with his elders' blessing to help with the harvest on the Athenite dependencies. Thus he got a little wheat for themselves and the other ascetics near them. After 1917 he never again went out into the world, and in 1978 he left the holy mountain for the true heavenly world. All those years he lived high up at Kapsala like a winged creature of the air. His face was in some way both weathered and bright, and just looking at him gave you spiritual strength. It was, of course, difficult to find him there in the wilderness where he lived, and for this reason he had no human consolation. But where there is no human consolation, divine consolation approaches. God sends his heavenly joy with the angels and the saints. These people of paradise, who have contact with the angels and the saints, also enjoy the friendship of wild animals and the winged creatures of the air, as did Elder Trifon. Once the most devout elder Joseph, the, the eldest, known as grandfather from the iconography house of Joseph, Joseph Foy, had offered Abrahamian hospitality to some lay people. Unfortunately, even though they had had a very pleasant time, they were scandalized because it seemed to them that the monks lived a life of ease, whereas in fact he himself lived very monastically. Since it was difficult for the laymen to comprehend this, Elder Joseph thought it would be a good idea to take them around to the Kalivya of Kapsala, so that they might benefit in another way since their thoughts were not good ones. Having made visits to a few of the ascetics, during which the layman had been taken by surprise, he then took them to the hermitage of Elder Trifon. When they saw the tiny elder in such complete renunciation, they were amazed. The humble-minded elder Joseph said to the visitors, I myself, who am acquainted with people, have neither the joy of Elder Trifon nor the companionship he shares with wild animals and the birds of the air. To convince you of this, I will call out first. He called for the birds to gather, but nothing happened. Soon afterwards, Elder Trifon appeared with a pitcher to offer them some water. Father Joseph said to, them, said to him, What sort of place is this, Elder Trifon? There is not a single bird here. The elder replied in all his simplicity, What do you mean, no birds? He called out, and the place was filled with various birds fluttering around him. Some perched on his shoulders, and others on his cap. The visitors marveled and left, spiritually benefited, glorifying God. I once lost my way going towards Kapsala, and by following an untrodden path, came upon the Kalivi of Elder Trifon, which was a shack with lots of old bits of tin nailed all over it. The roof was the same, just sheets of old corrugated iron and bits of tin with one or two stone slabs on them to stop the wind from tearing them off. Suddenly I saw the elder off to one side, sitting on a log, saying the Jesus prayer. His face was bright and full of joy. He had his eyes closed and was praying, sitting completely still. When I approached, I spoke to him. Your blessing, elder. How do you manage here? How do you live? What do you eat? He greeted me with a smile and said, Well, I have become a sheep and I eat grass. How old are you, elder? Ninety-three, he told me. I was completely astonished. In the meantime, he had got up to bring me a little water, and I saw that he was dragging his left leg, which was wrapped in some bits of rag. 
What is the matter with your leg, Elder? I asked him. A stone fell from the roof and hit me, he answered. The thought occurred to me that I should ask if he had a room in case the need arose for me to be of assistance to him. Do you have another room, Elder? He laughed and replied, Room? The Kalevi is full of trash. When I went inside, what should I see? It was falling down everywhere, with water coming in on all sides and from the roof. There was only one corner that was a little drier. It was there that he had placed some ragged blankets to lie on, but it looked more like an eagle's nest than an ascetic cell. I asked the elder, How can you live here? The whole Kalevi is open and all the wind and rain come in. He answered, But I live in the other corner over there, and he pointed to his nest. Since the poor elder ate whatever wild greens were around, and because of the dampness of his cell and his advanced age, it was only natural that he would have health problems. The athlete of Christ, Trifon, however, rejoiced over everything and so felt the joy which the holy martyrs had felt. His stomach, his intestines, everything internal was completely destroyed except for his healthy, luminously shining soul. He had some rags spread out to dry so that he could wear them again because his intestines kept causing him to have a frothy discharge. He could not, of course, wash them because his hands trembled so much and also because it was a long way, about 300 meters, to get the water which dripped slowly into an old barrel and was only enough for him to drink and for the wild animals, his well-behaved neighbors. Despite the fact that he was living a continuous martyrdom with the kind of philotimophilled, spirited, ascetic life he led, he still did not think highly of himself. He kept criticizing himself for not doing anything in comparison to the Holy Fathers, and humble tears spilled from his eyes as he said it. Time was getting on and I had to leave. I asked the elder, Would you like me to arrange for you to be taken into a monastery so that they can look after you in your old age? He smiled at the words, Look after, and said, Look after, huh? God looks after even the worms in the earth and feeds them and keeps them warm. Can't he look after me as well, great worm that I am? Father Xenophon had also told me, Come and I will look after you. But I said, What am I, a brick for you to take from here and put into your own Kalevi? My elder Michael is here. He who through his prayer made a stalk into a whole head of cabbage, and Father Xenophon wants to look after me? It is a fact that I have never seen another ascetic at such an age, 93 years old, to have such great self-denial and to live with spiritual levintia in such a state of renunciation. I suddenly learned that Elder Trifon had rested in the Lord. I went immediately to his hermitage, where I found him covered there in his corner, his nest, not with the ragged blankets, but with two or three buckets of earth, just as the noblemen who were once covered with silken and velvet blankets are also covered with earth. Elder Trifon departed for the next life on the feast day of the transfiguration of the Savior in 1978, aged 94. He struggled for a few years with great Philotimo, and now is at rest eternally. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. Footnote, Leventia means spiritual manliness, which means generosity of heart coupled with pluck. Father Cyril, the ascetic of the Skeet of the Holy Monastery of Kudlo Musio, and later the abbot of the same monastery. 
Father Cyril was from Agrinio. As a boy, he had immigrated to Egypt from where he was, where he went to St. Savas Monastery, having first made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He had become a Rasifor at the age of 16, but did not feel at ease there because of the large numbers of tourists. So he came to the Paravoli of the Panagia. Although he was still very young, and children of his age in the world were still at play, he struggled as a great athlete of Christ. In the skeet of St. Pantaliman of Kutlomujo Monastery, he felt very much at ease with his spiritual father, Father Pantaliman, who lived in the Kalivi, dedicated to the entrance of the Panagia into the temple. His elder, apart from the other gifts he had been given by God, also had that of insight, because he had become a man of God through the supernatural and philotimo-filled struggles he had undertaken. He could foresee which people would become monks, even their monastic name. I remember two such cases from the monastery of Esvigmenu alone. There was one layman to whom he had called out before he ever saw him while the man was knocking on his door. Welcome, Father Nikiforos. And also to another, Welcome, Father Philip. Well, from such a saintly elder like Father Pantaleman, it was only to be expected that the most devout young Father Cyril would receive grace in abundance, just as Elisha had from the prophet Elijah, and that he, would, he should remain as his successor. After the death of his elder, Father Cyril not only remained faithful to his spiritual duties, but struggled all the more, thus giving great joy to his elder's soul. Apart from the tremendous fasting he did, he also kept a great many vigils out of his great childlike zeal, and he had tuberculosis as well. He told me, With great difficulty I was bringing up clots of blood like knots, but I begged St. Pantaleman, and he made me well again without medicine. How could St. Pantaleman have let him suffer, since he was the patron saint of the ski? As soon as Father Cyril became well, by the grace of the saint, he again started his philotimo-filled ascetic struggle. I myself was granted the blessing of staying with him for a short time, and I benefited greatly. I would of course have stayed with him forever, but unfortunately I was not allowed. Then he told me where to go and continued to advise me during the period when I was at the monastery of Philotheo. Whenever I went to the skeet to get advice, he would always give me an answer to my problem before I even mentioned it. I was actually informed by God about when I would be visiting him and what was troubling me, and so he was expecting me. Often he did not even speak to me, but having marked a place in a book, he would give me the answer from the book. I would then make a prostration before him and leave, greatly benefited. Apart from the gift of insight which he had received from God, he also had the gift of being able to rid God's creatures of demons. I will never forget one case which I had seen with my own eyes involving a man who had a terrible demon. Bound in chains, he had been brought to the elder and left at the church of his Kalivi so that the elder could make him well. That night when the elder got up to light the vigil oil lamps and start the prayers, the demon flew into a rabid rage because it had been cornered by the presence of Father Cyril. He broke the chains and raised the possessed man's hands to strike the saint, saintly elder on the head with the broken chains. The father immediately knelt and also raised his hands, but to God, and cried aloud, My Christ, my Panagia, cast the demon out of your creature. 
On hearing the cries, I ran immediately into the church and saw the elder kneeling and the tormented man happily sitting with his head devoutly bent before Father Cyril, completely free of the demon. The elder had boldness before God because he was humble, very devout, and had great love. When he read the gospel, he could not hold back his sobs and tears, and for this reason he used to cover his face with the book of the gospels and go into the altar where he would discreetly wipe his face. The same thing happened when he would read the Theotokarion. He prayed the services with his combeskini and cultivated the unceasing prayer of the heart. Unfortunately, however, against his will, he was obliged to become the abbot of the holy monastery of Kutlomusio, to which he belonged because there was great need. His involvement in administrative matters caused him distress and made him lose that elevated spiritual state he had previously had. Since he had become abbot against his will, as I have said, and suffered many tribulations as a result, it is my belief that God will give him a double crown, the crown of the venerable one, as well as that of the martyr, because at the end he also endured martyrical pain. The hater of good was envious of him and got a wild animal to give him a nasty kick, which crippled him to such an extent that he had to stay in bed, enduring his pain with joy and glorifying God. After the animal kicked him, it fell to the ground and sprawled out dead. The fathers were amazed and recognized the elder's sanctity because of that event. And so, in pain and patience, glorifying God, Father Cyril ended the good fight and rested in the Lord in 1968. May his blessing be upon us. Amen. The Hiram monk who was tormented by the evil one because of a prideful thought. In one of the monasteries there is once a Hiram monk who outwardly seemed devout but inwardly had secret pride. In all things he was conventional, polite, and a struggler. Plus he spiritually counseled others because he was also a man of letters. He himself received no help from anyone, however, because the others, out of respect, were reluctant to mention anything they had noticed about him. He had created the illusion, not only in others but in himself too, that he was the most virtuous monk in the monastery and so forth. One day a possessed person had been brought to the monastery, and the abbot had assigned this Hara monk to read the prayers of exorcism over him. At the same time, he had told the fathers to pray with their combeskini, for God's creature to be set free. As a result, of course, the demon was completely hemmed in and cried out, Where are you casting me out to, you heartless monk? The devil used his cunning to give the priest the impression that it was he who was casting him out. And the monk replied to the demon, Come to me. From that moment on, the demon held complete sway over him. It is true that St. Parthenius had said the same thing to a demon he was casting out. But he was a saint, which is why the demon had replied, Your very name burns me, Parthenius. Footnote, we commemorate St. Parthenius on February 7th. And Parthenius is a Greek name for men coming from the word Parthenos, which means virgin. Once he was under demonic influence, the hieromonk was tormented for years and could find no respite anywhere. He was always on the move, sometimes out into the world and then back onto the holy mountain. His condition gave rise to spiritual weariness as well as to physical fatigue accompanied with trembling. Only in the last years of his life was he freed from the demon because he had been extremely humbled by the tempter 
involuntarily, of course, which was of great benefit to him. From then on, he always spoke in a humble manner and asked for advice concerning himself. The unprepared clergy who were prevented by God and did not celebrate the Divine Liturgy. There was once an elder in the cave of St. Athanasius of Mount Athos, commemorated July 5th, who had two disciples. One was a hieromonk and the other a deacon. One day these two disciples went to a chapel to celebrate the Divine Liturgy. The priest, however, had great envy for the deacon. He was jealous because the deacon was cleverer and therefore more skilled in everything. The deacon, however, did not help either with his, ego his egoistic ways. On the surface, the priest was prepared, having read the prayers of preparation before Holy Communion and performed all the related formalities. Unfortunately, however, he had omitted the main thing, inner preparation. He had not confessed humbly in order to rid his heart of the envy and the jealousy, neither of which depart with a change of our clothing or by washing our hair. Thus, with only his superficial preparation, he approached the dread altar in order to celebrate the divine liturgy. As soon as he began the service of proscomidi, or oblation, however, what happened? There was a sudden loud bang, and he saw the holy paten leave the prothesis, table of oblation, and disappear. As a result, they could no longer celebrate the divine liturgy. If the good Lord had not prevented them in that way, and had allowed the priest to celebrate in the spiritual state he had been in, I believe that he would have suffered great harm. This was also the opinion of Father Varlam from Vigla, who had told me about this occurrence. Elder Habakkuk It was only recently in 1979 that Elder Habakkuk rested in the Lord. He lived in the Holy Monastery of the Great Lavra and had the gift of being able to memorize entire chapters of the Holy Scriptures. He had previously lived as an ascetic in the desert of Vigla, but an incident made him leave in a terrified state for, the, for Lavra. He stayed there until his last days when his departure for the real life approached. One day when Elder Habakkuk was on a rock in Vigla, praying with his Combeskini, the devil suddenly appeared to him as an angel of light and said to him, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, God has sent me to take you to paradise because you have become an angel. Come on, let's fly. Elder Habakkuk was utterly amazed and answered in fear, How am I going to fly? You have wings to fly with. The supposed angel said to him, You have wings too, Habakkuk. You have become an angel, but you can't see them. Then Elder Habakkuk humbly made the sign of the cross and said, My Panagia, who am I that I should fly? He had hardly managed to finish his humble words when he saw that supposed angel transformed all at once into a grotesque black goat with wings like those of a bat, flying down into the chasm towards the sea and disappearing from sight. Extremely terrified, Elder Habakkuk gave thanks to Arpanagia for her protection, because the evil one would have cast him into chaos. He went to his Kalevi, took his bag, and headed for the monastery of Lavra, where he lived. From then on, as a Cenobitic monk, for greater assurance. Afterwards, he would go to his hermitage three or four times a year to celebrate the Divine Liturgy and return again to the monastery of Great Lavra. 
Being informed by God that the time was approaching for him to sleep in the Lord, he returned to his hermitage in order to leave his bones in the place of his repentance. There, as a younger man, he had also left his flesh through the supernatural ascetic struggles he had undertaken, so as to become somewhat incorporeal, as the angelic habit demands. The fathers visited him there in Vigla and saw he was very cheerful. One of the fathers wondered about this and said to him, You seem very cheerful, Father Habakkuk, yet you approach death. Why shouldn't I be cheerful, my brother? I have struggled as much as I could since I was a young man by God's grace. Now I am happy to be going to Christ. It is in just such a cheerful manner that the good fighters of Christ depart. The Two Bumptious Monks Who Were Deluded There were once two young men who as laymen had been close friends and had come to the holy mountain and become monks. Unfortunately, however, they neither sought advice from older monks nor listened to older monks' advice, but instead followed their own childish minds, which found them always in agreement on spiritual matters. Sometimes they would undertake long fasts until they were quite exhausted and then indulge in large amounts of food. Sometimes, with a childlike egoism, they took a turn at being reclusive hesychasts and afterwards ran about trying to find people with whom they could have lengthy and fruitless conversations. In other words, the evil one tossed them from left to right and again from right to left in the same way that they played at being monks with their childish minds. They did, however, have brotherly love between themselves. But what did that amount to? They impaired their minds with their egoism because they did not listen to anyone older, and each one satisfied the other's will. They had also promised that they would never be parted, either in this life or the next. The evil one, however, took advantage of that, and unfortunately soon got to work on them. One day one of them said to the other, The thought has occurred to me, my brother, that it is far from certain that what we have promised will in fact happen, that we shall both die on the same day. It would be more certain, for the sake of our promise, if we sew ourselves together the way they sew up corpses and then fall into the sea. Unfortunately, the other monk agreed quite happily, so they took a blanket, some string, and a bodkin, and set out happily for the sea. Upon a rock they sewed themselves together, and from there they fell down into the sea. Naturally, since they were wrapped up and sewn together, they both drowned on the same day. Quite some time went by, and then their corpses were found on a beach near Volos. All this happened in about 1912. This deplorable event, which startles us, also acts as a break on us, making us more careful. At the same time, it also obliges us to beg God not to consider our brother's suicide as such, but to overlook it as a childishly huge bit of waywardness. Amen. The Willful Disciple there was a disciple in Kapsokalivia who was very willful and would insist that his elder give him a blessing for whatever crossed his mind. In other words, he blackmailed his elder into giving him a blessing to do whatever he wanted. So one day, even though his presence was necessary while he was working with his elder, he said to the elder, Give me a blessing to go and have a nap for ten minutes. The elder replied, Be a little patient, my child because right now you have to hold up what I am making. In half an hour we will be finished and you can have your sleep. The disciple kept insisting to be given a blessing. The elder said to him, You blessed one, what sort of sleep are you going to get during ten minutes? He answered, Give me a blessing and I will sleep well. 
In the end, the elder was obliged to give him a blessing, since he kept insisting, and off he went to go to sleep. No sooner did he lay down on his bed, when he saw Satan hurling himself upon him in rabid rage to angrily seize him and squeeze like a lemon rind. The willful monk tried to get away, but could not, unfortunately. In his great distress, he was forced to say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me for the sake of my elder. Satan was then burned by the prayer, which was also filled with contrition, because at the time the disciple had really felt his disobedience and his unworthiness. He also realized that he did not have the boldness to ask for help himself, and so had asked Christ to have mercy on him for the sake of his elder. This, of course, was what had seared the devil, and he furiously threw the disciple out of his hands right out of the window, where he landed unharmed about 50 meters away. God had protected him. After this, he fled to his elder in terror and told him about the dreadful vision he had seen. The elder was taken aback. All of what had happened, all of that had happened within 10 minutes. After the lesson he had been given through temptation as a concession by God, that monk became the most obedient disciple in the skeet and made great spiritual progress. The Devout and Obedient Disciple There was a young monk at the holy monastery of Esfigmenu who was very contrite in his prayers, and since he was unable to hide his tears and sighs during the services, did not go down to the church but prayed alone in his cell. When the abbot saw that he was absent once or twice from the services, he started wondering and sent for the monk to come to his quarters and asked him, Why don't you attend the services, my child, like all the other fathers? The brother answered, Elder, it is difficult for me in church, but in my cell I can pray longer and with great contrition without anyone seeing me. The abbot, Father Sophronios, who was a most discerning man, said, You are right, my child, but come down to church for the services so you don't scandalize the fathers. The brother agreed happily and from then on was first down to church for the services. After a short time, however, the abbot found him a peaceful monastic task outside the monastery and thereby comforted, comforted the brother who was simultaneously helped spiritually and acquired greater reverence in the prayer of the heart. The Willful and Negligent Novice Monk in the skeet of Capsocalivia, there was a young monk who lived according to his own will without an elder. It was only natural, of course, that the devil would pummel him left and right and heave him into negligence. In the beginning, he would fast a lot, but then he would binge. He ate a lot, drank wine, and because he was young, his flesh was aflame, so that when he lay down, he was obliged to take off his habit and sleep in his underclothes. Seeing the unruly behavior of the young man, the Paniya, like a good mother, shook him awake and cautioned him with the following words. Next time, restrain yourself while eating, and you should be modest while sleeping. Keep your habit on. After that, as was only to be expected, the monk was spiritually transformed and reverently struggled. The Negligent Young Monk In the holy monastery of Constamonitu, in Philaritos' time, there was a young monk who, out of negligence, did not go down to the church for services and also skipped all his spiritual duties. The abbot, Father Philaritos, himself a most devout man, repeatedly upbraided and counseled him, but he continued to be indifferent to everything.
The elder was then forced to turn him over to Panaya and begged her day and night to help the brother. Well, one day the brother saw Panaya saying to him sadly, The terrible state you are in really saddens me. Now that you are young and healthy, you won't go down to church to pray, but you sit in your cell choked by wicked thoughts. So when will you go? When you are old or fall ill? After that, the monk changed completely. He was first down to the services and struggled with great eagerness. The Negligent Elderly Monk Once an elderly man came to a cali near Cariez and became a monk. He remained a rasafor, however, because it was his aim to live at ease. Footnote A novice who has yet to receive tonsure but has the blessing to wear a raso or monastic robe is a rasafor. He never bothered with his rule of prayer, not even his small rule, nor indeed any other spiritual duties. He used to say, when I become a monk of the great angelic habit, then I will do it. In this way, he falsely salved his conscience and without realizing it reached the end of his life. He had become bedridden and was wrestling with death. At that point, he engaged in a grave dialogue with the demons who were tormenting him such that the monk was obliged to cry aloud for help. The elder ran to him and asked him, What is the matter? It is the demons. They are tormenting me about my rule of prayer that I never kept. Tell them that I will do it, said the elder, and left. Soon he started shouting again. The elder ran to him and said, What is the matter? Be quiet. You'll wake the fathers. He answered, I can't stand it, elder. The demons are choking me for all the services I skipped. Tell them that your elder will do these as well. That was the only way that the negligent brother could make peace with his soul in order to surrender it. An angel castigates the idiorhythmic monastery of Xerapatamu. When the holy monastery of Xerapatamu was idiorhythmic, an angel of the Lord appeared to one of the presiding elders and said to him, What is going on here? It has been a whole thirty years since I have taken a soul from here in a good spiritual state, the way God wants it. The fathers have slacked off on their spiritual struggles and have practically begun to live like worldly people. The brother who was saved without effort because he did not judge. There was once a layman who went to the skeet of Capsocalivia to become a monk. The fathers of the skeet, however, would not accept him because apart from being idle and negligent, he was quite the troublemaker and always created problems. Since the skeet gave him a sense of comfort, he begged the fathers to allow him to remain there as a layman and do a little work. So he spent his life in idleness and negligence until the hour of his death, when he finally took to his bed and waited to die. The fathers nonetheless stood by him and were continuously at his side. One day, the man who was about to die was seized by ecstasy and started making gestures. The fathers wondered what was happening. When he came to himself again, he described an awesome event to them. I saw the archangel Michael holding a piece of paper with all my sins on it, and he told me, You see this? You did all of these things, so get ready to go to hell. Then I said to him, Just have a look. Among all those sins, does it mention the sin of judging others? The archangel looked and said to me, No, it doesn't. In that case, I told him, I should not go to hell according to what the Lord said, Do not judge and you will not be judged.
Then the archangel Michael tore up the paper with my sins on it, and so, fathers, I will go to paradise. When you had told me that I would not do for a monk in the ski, and I was working as a layman and going to church on feast days, I heard the words of the gospel, Do not judge that you be not judged. And I said to myself, Wretched man, at least you can put that into practice. And that saved me without any other effort. As soon as he had said these words, he delivered his soul to the archangel Michael. Father Methodios's and Father Joachim's foreknowledge of death. On the feast day of the veneration of the cross in 1978, the hieromonk Father Methodios from the Cali of Saints Theodore of Tyron and Theodore Stratilates in Cariez called for hieromonk Father Christopher, who lived a little before Cariez. He sent him to the holy monastery of Kutlomusio, where a fellow countryman, Father Joachim, all three were Romanians from the same brotherhood, was being cared for in his old age to tell him to prepare himself since they were both to die the next day, that is, Father Methodios and Father Joachim. So Father Christopher went to the monastery of Kutlomusio and told him, Your blessing, Father Joachim, Father Methodius told me to tell you to get ready because you will both die tomorrow at the same time. He also asked your forgiveness for any wrong he has done you. When Father Joachim heard him out, he said to him joyfully, May it be blessed for Father Methodius to have said this, he must know something. It so happened that Father Joachim had received Holy Communion that day, and he had said to the deacon Anastasios, It is the first time in my life I have felt such joy. Then he went to his cell and waited joyfully for the hour of his death, repeating over and over in Romanian, My Panagia, my mother, my Panagia, my mother. How could the Panagia not be his mother, since as a boy of sixteen he had left his natural mother and father and had gone to the Paravolia the Panagia to become a monk? From childhood he had become a spiritual immigrant on the holy mountain for the love of Christ until his ninetieth year in order to acquire the wealth of eternal things. He had been written off from the world from the time he was sixteen and written into the book of life. While he was saying, My Panagia, my mother, my Panagia, my mother, at five o'clock Byzantine time, he closed his eyes like a little child and fell peacefully asleep in the arms of his mother. At exactly the same time, Father Methodius fell asleep in the Lord with a righteous death at the age of about seventy. The two sanctified souls left together because there was great love between them. They had asked God not to be parted in this life nor in the next. The good Lord saw to them as well as to us in order to benefit us. Amen. The disciple who was not obedient to his elder and was saved because he hoped in God. Father Methodius of the Kelly of the Saints Theodore of Tyron and Theodore Stratilatis in Cariez related that his elder used to be very worried about the spiritual progress of his disciples because he reproached himself for the obedience he himself had practiced and in fact regretted to his dying day. A few years later, Father Methodius saw his elder in a vision and asked him, How are you, elder? Where are you? He answered, I am well, I am saved, but how was I saved? With a great deal of effort because I wasn't obedient to my elder, 
When I died, the angel asked me in a severe tone, Do you have any good work to present? What have you done? And I answered, I have no good work to offer, only sinful actions and disobedience to my elder. The only thing I have is my hope in God, and the mercy of God will work for me too. The angel then went to inquire about this and returned a little later, saying, Since you humbly recognize the wretched state you are in and hoped only in God, Christ told me to place you among the saved. Father Methodius then asked his elder about a sawyer they had known who had died. Where is the sawyer, elder? And he answered, The sawyer is in a better place than I am, because he not only had suffered greatly in his life, but had also been humbly obedient to all the bosses for whom he had worked without complaining. He also asked him about the whereabouts of a possessed person who had been tormented by a demon. And the elder said, He is in an even better place because he had suffered a great deal and the demon had humiliated him in people's eyes. He himself, however, had been very humbled as well because he used to say, The prayers of the fathers will save me too the wretch that I am. At the hour of the death of Father Methodius's elder, an astounding event had occurred. Although he had given up his spirit, he came back to life for a short time. The fathers who were close by him said, How strange! How did you give up your spirit? And then the elder answered, A short while after my soul had departed, an angel said to me, Go back and say goodbye first to your brother. I said to him, I haven't got a brother, either in the world or in monastic life. The angel said, I mean your body, the brother of your soul. When I returned to my body, then I came to know myself. The angel again said to me, Say goodbye to your body, because in it you endured hardship. Then his soul departed for heaven. The chanter who attended a feast with a brother who had been dead for six months. The famous chanter, Deacon John, from the Kali of Rabduchu, who has recently rested in the Lord, had once gone to the feast of the Holy Monastery of Gregorio to chant. After he had chanted during the Great Vespers and the Liti was about to begin, the elder felt the need to go to the guest house to have a coffee to keep his strength up so that he could go on with his chanting. Footnote, Liti is a processional service of supplication which takes place on great feasts and during all-night vigils for celebrated saints at the Esonarthex of the church, which is also called Liti. Back to the text. In the guest house during a discussion on chanting and the fathers who were chanting, Deacon John said, I saw Father David and he is still keeping up well. Father Makarios one of the older fathers was taken aback on hearing this and said to Deacon John, Father David died six months ago. You are mistaken. Deacon John was startled and replied with conviction, Father, I don't know when he died or what you are talking about. One thing I do know is that I saw Father David a few minutes ago at the Leti. We greeted each other and even talked a bit about chanting. Pania anoints a devout young man. A few years ago now, a young man who had his heart in monasticism most devotedly attended an all-night vigil at one of the monasteries on the holy mountain. It was the feast of the entrance of the Theotokos in the temple, 
and since he also wanted to dedicate himself to God, he stood throughout the vigil and prayed devoutly. When the service reached the praises, the priest anointed the fathers and the pilgrims with oil from the vigil oil lamp of the Panagia. Due to his great reverence and oversensitivity, the young man did not go up to be anointed because he felt he was unworthy. When everyone had finished and the priest had gone inside, the young man felt the need in his heart to at least go and venerate the icon of the Panagia so that he would also receive a little grace. While he was piously venerating the icon of the Panagia, the vigil oil lamp tilted beautifully and oil was poured onto the head of the, of the young man without dripping on the floor or his clothes. It fell only on the top of his head. At the same time, he felt an inexpressible spiritual exaltation such as he had never before experienced in his life. When I saw the young man from a distance before he had even told me about the occurrence, and because his transformed countenance revealed the divine experience, I asked him what had happened to him. Then he told me about it with great simplicity. So you can see that the Panagia herself anoints the very devout and humble and spiritually transforms them. A very faithful and philotimo-filled novice is cured by Christ. When Sophronius was abbot of the monastery of Esphigmenu, there was a young monk who had greatly progressed in the virtues. Apart from his great reverence, he was also distinguished for his humbleness and great asceticism. Since he was sickly by nature and pampered, having come from a noble family, he was struck by tuberculosis due to the abrupt ascetic discipline he had taken upon himself. His discerning abbot gave him a blessing to drink evaporated milk even during Great Lent. The brother accepted it and said, May it be blessed. Since he had great faith in God, however, he related his thoughts to the elder. If I have your blessing to drink tea, Christ can turn it into milk and even cure me with tea. The elder was much moved by the monk's philodimo and gave him a blessing to drink tea instead of milk. Yet if the humble words of the pious monk moved the abbot, how much more so did they move Christ? Elder Dorotheos, who was the nurse, told me that Christ had not only turned that tea into milk, but also into a therapeutic medicine, and the monk was cured of tuberculosis. He stopped spitting up blood, the fever passed, the lassitude left him, and he became completely well. Then he tirelessly performed his spiritual duties and monastic tasks, and fasted as did all the other fathers. Illnesses are beneficial and rewarded in heaven when we patiently endure them. A few years ago, a certain elder who had been greatly tormented by illnesses ultimately died without grumbling. A short while later, his disciple also fell ill, and never having been ill before, panicked and got ready to go out into the world to see doctors in order to be cured. That evening, however, he saw his elder in a dream, saying to him, My child, listen to me if you like, and don't go anywhere. Be patient. I have not received any benefit here from my labors. Only sickness was a benefit to me. So stay in the Paravoli of the Panagia, and be a little patient with the pain, and your soul will be greatly benefited. Joyous, the disciple then took courage and was patient. Thereafter, he felt great joy through his pain, because his mind was on the holy martyrs, and he rejoiced. The Ministering Monk Who Complained Close to Caryes, there were once two Romanians living as ascetics in the same Cali. 
One of them fell gravely ill at one time, and the other unfortunately could hardly be bothered to minister to him. So he kept begging St. Pantaleon either to cure the invalid, invalid quickly or to take him from this life in order to be spared the small amount of trouble involved in ministering to him. One day, while he was again begging St. Pantaleon, the saint appeared to him and said, What are you begging for? You are devoid of virtues. Take care of your brother, and you will get some small reward from God. The words of St. Pantaleon startled the monk, who should have been ministering to his brother. From then on, he looked after the invalid with the utmost willingness and asked God to keep him alive for many years so that he could continue to take care of him in his old age. The careless talk of the naive monk who received corrective punishment from God. In the geriatric hospice of the monastery of St. Paul, there was an orderly who was rather naive but very good. He himself told me how about 40 years ago, when he had been serving in the geriatric hospice of the monastery, one of the brothers had given him a bunch of grapes as a blessing. Out of his goodness, he had not eaten it, but had cut it up into smaller bunches and shared them with the elderly monks. One Philotimo-filled monk kept wishing him good paradise to you, good paradise, because they were the first grapes he had eaten, the other ones not being ripe yet. The orderly, in his simple way, replied to him jokingly, Eat your grapes, you blessed man. Here's where paradise and hell are. Although he did not believe it, he had said it as a joke and had the excuse of his guilelessness. This is what happened to him. That night he had a terrible dream, but felt as if he was awake. He gazed out over a sea of fire. Across from it was a beautiful gulf with crystal palaces and a venerable elder who lived there along that beautiful gulf. That elder was so radiant that even his beard looked like silk. There he met a brother from the monastery, one who had fallen asleep in the Lord three years earlier, and he asked him about these palaces, which had made a big impression on him and about the venerable elder. The brother told him, That is Elder Abraham, and this beautiful gulf with the crystal palaces is the bosom, bosom of Abraham, where the souls of the righteous rest. Footnote. In Greek, the words gulf and bosom have the same meaning. Back to the text. While the brother was saying this, righteous Abraham heard it and said to Father Gregory, the orderly, in a severe tone, Get out of here, you. You have no place here. With the rebuke patriarch Abraham had given him, the orderly turned to quickly leave, but as he did so, he felt a flame from the fiery sea grab hold of him and was awakened by the pain. But what should he see? The leg on which he had felt the burning was covered in blisters and burns and continued to give him pain for another twenty days before the wounds were healed with ointments and various practical herbs. He bitterly repented of what he had said and was much more careful about what he said thereafter. Panihia protects and watches over the monks in her garden like a good mother. Once when Elder Theophylactos from Nuski was a novice, he was in great pain and wept inconsolably. Then quite suddenly he heard a voice coming from the icon of the Panagia asking him, Why are you crying? What are you afraid of? Would I abandon you? Indeed, the Panagia never did abandon him, but like a good mother protected him all the time, just as she protects all the monks who live in her garden. That icon of the Panagia 
is now in the sanctuary of the Kiryakon of Nuski. The righteous martyr Damianos cures a young monk. During the time when Sophronios was abbot of the monastery of Esphigmenu, a young monk fell ill. He had lost his patience and was constantly asking the abbot for a blessing to go into the world to be cured. The elder gave him his blessing and consoled him, but because the monk was young, he prayed a great deal for him so that he would not be spiritually harmed while he was out in the world. So the monk set out on a well-behaved mule to go to Carriers to have his permit stamped and then leave from the port of Daphne. He had got no further than 30 minutes away from the monastery when an ascetic with a radiant face appeared in front of him and asked him, Where are you off to, brother? The sick monk replied, I'm going out into the world to be cured. The ascetic then said to him, Do you want to get well, brother? And made the sign of the cross over him, saying, From this moment on, you will have your physical health, but you won't have any reward from God. Having said this, the ascetic disappeared. He was a saint, and he had taken with him the sickness and pain of the brother, who from then on became completely well. The brother returned to the monastery where he related the miracle with the saint. The fathers said that it had been the righteous martyr Demianos, who had lived as an ascetic in the skeet of Samaria on the knoll above the monastery. The Value of a Monk There was once a monk from the skeet of Capsocalivia who had been attacked by the evil one who led him up the garden path with the thought that he was not achieving anything, whereas out in the world he could have done good deeds for his fellow men and so on. The devil also made him think that the monastic state was somehow secondary and other similar things. The good Lord saw the cunning of the hater of good and the great danger the brother was about to confront and allowed for the brother to see a wonderful vision while he was awake. He saw himself dead with the demons approaching and taunting him, and further away a city with a host of people in it. All of a sudden an angel arrived and said, A perfect monk is worth more than the whole of that city. When the monk came to himself after the vision, he said, Look at the things a monk is made worthy of by God. From then on he devoted himself to greater spiritual asceticism. He also wrote the words of the angel in his cell so that he would see them and willingly struggle all the more. The Power of the Monk's Prayer Down below St. Basil's where the mountain range Zygos turns toward the skeet of St. Anne, there lived a monk of the great Lavra who had been assigned to look after the goats that grazed there. Once during Meat Fair, or Ap Apocrius, just before Great Lent, when there was a full moon and while the assigned monk, Father Ephraim, a brother of the monastery, was praying with his combaschini, he heard a great hubbub. There was not any trouble, just shouts, Oh, oh! These people must be strangers making merry, Father Ephraim thought to himself. So out he went into the moonlight, but what should he see? About three hundred demons being restless and impatient while their leader was saying, Just look, a skeletal monk delays our phalanx 
for days, and now we can't get out into the world in time for the carnival parties and the revelry. Footnote. Apocrius is the word. The word refers to the last week during which meat consumption is allowed before the beginning of the Great Lent. Furthermore, it is identified with the first three weeks of the Triodion, which begins with the Sunday of the Publican and the Pharisee. During Apocrius, it is a custom for people in the world to hold carnival parties. The Power of the Combaschini of the Jesus Prayer Once there was a monk from the monastery of St. Paul who had gone to the church of St. Gerasimus on the island of Cephalonia. During the Divine Liturgy, he stood by the Holy Table and was inwardly, noetically praying with his Combaschini, the prayer of the heart, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon us, while outside they were chanting. A possessed person had also been brought into the church to be cured by St. Gerasimus. While the monk was in the sanctuary saying the Jesus prayer, outside the demon was being seared and was shouting, Stop working that string, will you, monk? It is burning me. The priest also heard this and said to the monk, Pray with your combaschini as much as you can, my brother, so that God's creature can be freed of the demon. Enraged, the demon then shouted, You rotten priest, you! What are you telling him to pull that string for? It is burning me. Then with great anguish, the monk prayed with his combaschini, and the possessed man was delivered from the demon. The Power of the Jesus Prayer Elder Zacharias used to tell us that at the Kalivi of the Transfiguration of the Savior in Nuskeet, the fathers would say the Jesus Prayer out loud. Once, enraged, the demons had gathered, and one of them shouted, They are saying the Jesus Prayer out loud. The prayer has no power. One of the largest demons then said, Whether they say the Jesus Prayer aloud or noetically, in their hearts, it has power, one about which there is nothing we can do. The Jesus Prayer with Exertion Elder Arsenios, the cave dweller, used to say, When I pray with the combaschini while standing, I sense an intensely divine fragrance. When I say the Jesus Prayer while sitting, I only sense a life fragrance. Despite the fact that the elder was 95 years old, he continued with Philotimo to struggle and was constantly enriched spiritually, even though he had already set aside a lot of spiritual capital. The monk's spiritual misery comes from worldly convenience. One day, Elder Theophylactos of Nuski saw Satan going past the Kalivya of the Skeet with his tongue out, mocking the monks and saying, Ha ha ha! The monks have abandoned the Jesus prayer and have worldly distractions. They are occupied with many tasks. Indeed, when some monks had installed the telephone link in New Skeet, Elder Theophylactos had seen St. John the Baptist looking very sad. How could St. John and all the Athenite Holy Fathers not be sad, since some monks imitate laymen with their comfortable lives rather than the Holy Fathers? The Athenite Fathers had, with their Philotimo, struggled for Christ, and thus were not only sanctified themselves, but had also sanctified the wild mountain, Athos, which is why it was called the Holy Mountain 
and today we are looked upon admiringly as Athenites. Worldly logic brings spiritual ruin. When a monk first brought hens onto the holy mountain, the Paniya appeared before him and upbraided him with these words, Have you come here to spoil my garden? Also another elder at the skeet of St. Anne had brought a goat in order to provide milk for a sickly monk of his, but instead of milk the goat produced blood. The elder realized his mistake, that Paniya does not want goats in her garden, and from then on God evaporated milk for his disciple. As we can see in the old days, Paniya kept the instigators of evil in check. Now, where would she begin, the worldly spirit having so pervaded her garden? She simply puts up with us like a good mother. Quietude and carefreeness are the most important prerequisites for the spiritual life in which Paniya rejoices. High up at St. Anne's in the Calivi of St. Pantaleman, there dwelt in asceticism the righteous Yeranios, the founder of the skeet of St. Anne, who had served as the abbot of the monastery of Vuliftirion. Since there had been no water at the hermitage and his disciple had complained about this, the righteous Yeranios prayed to the Paniya and begged her to bring forth water from the rock for them to drink. The Paniya, like an affectionate mother, heard him and brought water out of a crack in the nearby rock for them to drink. The water was also holy water. Later on, however, the disciple of the righteous elder wanted to make a garden. He built low walls, carried earth to make terraces, and began to deviate from the ascetic life, neglecting his spiritual duties and his prayer for the world. He had actually considered opening up the crack in the rock with a chisel so that more water could come out for him to water his garden. The Paniya then appeared to him and said, Since you want gardens, you can carry the water on your shoulders from down below. From then on and to this day, water has been coming out from further down. It is also holy water. Monks must be a good example for the laity. A fisherman once took fresh fish to Father Manas, a most pious monk of the skeet of St. Anne, for his feast day. The elder was wondering when the man had caught them because it was a Sunday, so he asked the fisherman, When did you catch them? He replied, This morning they are as fresh as can be. Father Manas then told him, I can't buy them, my child. They are cursed because you caught them on a Sunday. The fisherman could not understand this, and so the elder said to him, Do you wish to confirm this? Give a fish to the cat, and you will see that it will not eat it. In fact, the cat did not eat it. It turned away in disgust. The fisherman was naturally shocked at seeing this, and from then on he respected Sundays and great feasts. Father Manas was very monastic and distinguished for his reverence and asceticism. He ate food without oil once a day, after the ninth hour, it was only to be expected that divine grace would reside in him since he was also very humble. St. George caters for his feast. In the Kali of St. George, Phanerominos, the revealed one, Elder Evlogios, the disciple of Elder Hagi Georgis, could not find fish for the feast and left the matter in the care of St. George. 
On the eve of the feast, he suddenly heard an animal knocking against the door. He went outside, and what should he see? A mule laden with pounds and pounds of good fish. He glorified God and thanked the saint. He then saw to the mule, which had come a long way all by itself, it had been guided by St. George. How had that taken place? Well, a man from the town of Irisos had been leading two mules laden with fish to the monastery of Zografu. The saint had taken one of the animals and led it to the Cali of St. George, Phanaromenos, as requested by the most pious elder Evlogios. The man from Irisos had looked everywhere, asking right and left, and later learned that the mule had taken the fish to the Cali of St. George. He had also understood the miracle, St. George's providence for the feast, and they all praised God together. St. Spiridon caters for his feast. Once at the Cali of St. Spiridon, who is known as the Kirkiriko of the monastery of Kutlomusiu, the fathers were worried, for as the feast of the saint approached, they had not been able to catch any fish for the festal meal. The monks told the elder to buy codfish since they had found nothing else. The elder told them, Be patient, St. Spiridon will bring us fish. And he kept praying with his kambaskini. Footnote. Kirkiriko means from the Greek island of Kirkira, also known as Corfu. Back to the text. While the fathers had lost all patience and were extremely upset because it was time to start cooking, they suddenly heard a knock on the door. They opened it, and what should they see? Two fishermen with two boxes full of fish asking for the elder. The disciples called the elder, but the fishermen said, That is not the elder. Another elder had come to us and said, Take the fish to the Cali of St. Spiridon, which is celebrating a feast, and you will get a good price for them. If you like, I will also give you an advance. The elder realized a miracle had taken place and took them into the church to venerate the icons. As soon as they set eyes on the icon of St. Spiridon, they said, There you are, that is the elder who told us to bring the fish here. The elder then said to them, Ah, my children, what a shame you didn't take the advance from the saint so that we could have it here as a blessing. God's blessing comes when we give a blessing. Elder Savas of the monastery of Philotheo had told me that during the great famine of 1917, the monks of the monastery of Iveron, seeing stocks in their storehouses running low, had reduced their commitments to hospitality. In fact, one miserly presiding elder insisted, and the fathers put a stop to hospitality altogether. It was only to be expected that Christ would put a stop to all his blessings too. The fathers then began to starve and complain to Christ and the Paniya for not taking better care of their monastery. Unfortunately, they had not realized their mistake. One day, Christ appeared to the doorkeeper of the monastery in the guise of a pauper asking for bread. The doorkeeper said to him sorrowfully, We haven't got any, my brother. That is why we stopped offering hospitality to the people. But just wait here a minute and I will go to my cell and bring you the bit I have for myself. He went running off to his cell and returned with his bread and handed it over. 
he saw the face of the pauper shining. When the pauper had taken the bread, he said to the doorkeeper, Do you know why misfortune has befallen the monastery? Because you have cast out two people. The one is called Give, and the other one is called It shall be given to you. Having said this, he disappeared from sight, leaving behind a brightness which blinded the doorkeeper. The monk was astonished and ran off in fear to tell the presiding elders of the monastery about the incident. At first, the fathers racked their brains trying to remember the people they had turned away. Then they, re they realized that the pauper was Christ himself and also recognized his words from the gospel, quote, Give and it shall be given to you, unquote. They immediately repented for their error, and as soon as they began to give some of the little they had left to the poor, they were showered by the rich blessings of God. The Providence of the Sweetly Kissing Panagia Towards the Holy Monastery of Philotheo During the German occupation, almost the entire wheat supply of the monastery of Philotheo had run out. So the fathers decided to stop offering hospitality. There was one pious monk, Elder Savas, who was much saddened when he heard that, and he begged the executive committee of the monastery not to do so because it would make Christ sad and his blessing would be withdrawn from the monastery. He related many examples from Holy Scripture, such as the widow woman and the prophet Elijah, and so on, and in the end, they complied with him. Every now and again, they would bother Elder Savas and say, the flower has run out, now what do we do? The elder would reply, Fathers, we will eat the little that is left with other people, and the Paniya won't abandon us. All that was left was 33 kilos of wheat in the monastery storehouse, nothing else, and the fathers began to complain to Elder Savas jokingly. Well, Elder Savas, the wheat is finished, now what? The most pious and devout little elder answered, Blessed fathers, don't lose your hope in our sweetly kissing panagia. Grind those 33 kilos of wheat, make the bread and share it out among the fathers and the laymen, and God will look after us like the good father he is. When their bread had just run out, before they had even begun to feel hungry, a captain arrived at the monastery of Philotheo from Kabbalah, and asked for timber in exchange for wheat. The fathers, seeing the providence of the Paniya so vividly manifested, and the way she cared for her children like a good mother, all glorified God. Of course, more than anyone else, Elder Savas glorified God and rendered thanks to the Paniya, whom he continually pleased with his saintly life. Thereafter, the elder would say to the fathers, Didn't I tell you, blessed fathers, that the Paniya wouldn't abandon us? The merciless monk who became deluded because he practiced a barren asceticism devoid of love and discernment. Father X had arrived on the holy mountain with a friend of his in order to become monks after witnessing a miracle by the Paniya on the island of Tinos when a person who had been paralyzed from birth was made well. The friend stayed at New Skeet while Father X went up to the northeastern side and became a monk in an idiorhythmic monastery. Since there is a lot of freedom in idiorhythmic monasteries, you need to be very careful, of course, because if you do not take proper advantage of it, 
you can become worse than worldly people or even become deluded. Father X had a fighting spirit, but the unrestricted spirit of the idiorhythmic monastery tipped him first into pride and then into arrogance. The harder he pridefully struggled, the harder his heart became. He was not at all interested in whether his neighbor was in danger or writhing in pain, just so long as he completed as many prayers with his combeskini and his numerous prostrations. He filled all his hours, even the minutes, with spiritual efforts, supplicatory canons, and so on, and egoistically forced himself to become saintly to such an extent that he was full of anxiety. He fasted very strictly, never eating until the ninth hour or for three days at a time. Anyone looking at his external appearance only, bent, skeletal, with a serious mane and so on, would have formed the view that he was a great ascetic. His monastic task was that of forester, so he spent most of his time in the forest, but even that did him harm. Whenever he returned to the monastery, it was as though Anthony the Great had come down from the mountain. He never spoke to any of the brotherhood, locked himself in his cell, and as I have said, egoistically forced himself through his struggles to become saintly. Well, one day, one of the workers fell from a tree in the forest, and the poor man was badly hurt. His son immediately picked him up and carried him down close to the monastery, both to inform the forester, Father X, of the incident, and to ask for a blanket to get his crippled father to the pier, and then to Thessaloniki. Unfortunately, however, Father X not only refused to give him a blanket, but was also thinking about the time the young man was taking up with this business about his father. Of course, he was obliged not only to listen to him, but to help him as well, since he was not only the forester, but also one of the presiding priests of the monastery. Unfortunately, he shut the door of his cell, so he would not be delayed in fulfilling his spiritual duties. When the fathers of the monastery saw the young man weeping, they went to him and offered him their support. They comforted the youth, helped him to move his injured father, and also saw to it that the man was admitted to a hospital. After such mercilessness, it was only to be expected that the grace of God was completely withdrawn from Father X, and the wretched man would gradually sink into spiritual darkness. He began to boast that he was on a par with the Holy Fathers, and that he had visions of saints, angels, lights, and so on. One day, however, a supposed angel appeared to him again and said, Get yourself ready quickly, Father X. I will be back soon to take you. He replied, Let it be blessed, and put on his new rasso, cassock, an angelic schema in great haste. In the meantime, the supposed angel shouted again, Come on quickly, get up on the windows so I can take you. The father answered, Just a second while I get a stool to climb up on. After this dialogue, as the former abbot told me, there was a sound of someone falling and an ah. By the time the fathers reached him, he was gone. He had broken into pieces, being a big-boned big -boned man and having fallen from a great height. He had actually fallen from the third floor straight onto the paved courtyard. The fathers gathered him up in a blanket, suffering from double the pain since they were thinking more about the loss of his soul. They went up to his cell to put it in order 
and there they found a piece of paper with words in large letters saying, There are 3,000 drachmas under this piece of paper for 40 divine liturgies. If you don't do this, may you have the leprosy of Gehazi, the noose of Judas, and the curse of the 318 God-bearing fathers of the First Ecumenical Synod. Underneath was his signature. May the good Lord, who is all-merciful, take pity on his wretched creature, and may the double fall of the deluded brother act as a double break on us, so that we may struggle with great humility and love, that we may draw closer to God. Amen. Footnote. A pious custom where one sponsors the celebrating of 40 consecutive divine liturgies for a particular reason is referred to as the 40 divine liturgies. The monk who was saved from dreadful delusion. A brother in one of the monasteries struggled a great deal, but with a lot of imagination and a high opinion of himself. He gradually stopped receiving Holy Communion because the thought had taken hold of him that he no longer had any need of Holy Communion and he believed that Christ resided within him. He took only Andiron and would often get through the whole day on it. He undertook tremendous fasts. He never drank Agiasmo, holy water. The wretched man used to say, I am now sanctified and even my urine is sanctified so I can drink whenever I like. The unfortunate man was drinking his own urine. Just think what a disgusting delusion he had fallen into. He began to grow fractious, misbehave in the monastery and say all sorts of nonsense. The fathers were forced to shut him up in the monastery tower for his own safety and prayed constantly that he would come to his senses. They had appointed one of the fathers to look after him and see that he did not do himself any harm. Whenever this monk took him his food, he would always have something to tell him about his usual delusions. I saw a saint, my brother, or I saw an angel, or I am going to become a holy martyr, and so on. Bearing all this in mind, the attendant monk never brought him anything sharp and made sure that all his food was already cleaned and cut up. One day, however, he brought him an open tin of sardines because it was a feast and the devil got to work. Once he had finished his food, the devil again appeared to him as an angel and said, Christ has prepared a crown of righteousness for you. Now he is preparing that of a martyr, and he is waiting for you to become a martyr in the tower prison, where you endure martyrdom for his love. Then he put thoughts of martyrdom into the monk's head, and the latter started searching for something sharp. And so he was led to the lid of the tin, which took and started to, quote, martyr, unquote, himself. He cut his throat, but slowly because it hurt. He was cutting and shouting at the same time. The fathers all came running when they heard those heartrending cries with the attendant monk at the fore. But what should they see? Such a scene that they did not know whether to laugh or cry. On the one hand he was shouting, and on the other he was cutting his own throat. When the father snatched the lid away from him, he shouted, Let me become a martyr. The attendant monk then took him in hand and said to him, Just be patient for a minute while I dress your wound, and then I will make you a martyr so that you will have your reward. The monk who looked after him was a man of great love who sacrificed himself for others, but was also a bit lively. 
Once he had seen to the wounds, he took off his belt and started in on the monk's back. He dealt him a few heavy blows, and the deluded monk could not take the beating the other monk was giving him and cried, Leave me alone, I can't take martyrdom. This is how he was made a laughingstock and humbled before others. On his own and with his own will, and since he had the help of the get out of the get out of here, footnote, the get out of here is another name for the devil. He had been inclined to cut his own head off. With the help of the brother who loved him, however, and who had belted him a few times to bring him to his senses, he became disinclined to martyrdom. The poor fathers of the monastery kept praying that God would find a way to save the brother from his terrible delusion, and the good Lord helped. The brother was humbled, he repented and confessed, received Holy Communion, and by God's grace came to his senses. In other words, he was snatched from the talons of the manslayer the devil. He lived a good many years after this in contrition and humbleness and rested in the Lord. Glory to God. Pleasant Events Sometimes when you have been eating sweet fruit all the time, at the end you happen to come across a bitter or sour one. Then you have to eat one or two sweet ones again to get rid of the bitter taste. Well, the same thing should apply to this current spiritual situation. Since I have made you bitter by relating the last two accounts, I thought I ought to offer you two more brief but very sweet divine occurrences so as to sweeten your souls again spiritually. I did not actually see these myself, but I heard about them from devout elders as well as from my own elder, all of whom had first-hand experience of them. More than fifty years ago, in the hermitages of Katunakia, in the Kalevi of Action Estin, there lived an elder with three disciples, Father Georgios, Father Pacomius, and Father Chrysostomos. On the death of the elder, the succession passed to the monk who had been tonsured the longest, Father Georgios. Since the new elder was very simple and completely illiterate, the other two did not want to submit to him because they had a little more education than Father Georgios, but also a bit of pride. So they left and deserted him. Then they also split up because the one would not agree to be obedient to the other. They even changed residences one after the other, from monastery to monastery, and from Kali to Kali. One day one of the brothers remembered the elder whom they had left all alone, abandoned, and by then in his old age, and so he decided to go and see him. He took some blessings in his bag and set off. When he got to the neighboring Kalivi, he asked about the elder, but they had not seen him. Another father said, His chimney was smoking a week ago. He is probably all right. Worried, he finally arrived at the Kalivi. When he saw how quiet it was inside and out, he became even more worried. He began shouting loudly and banging on the door, but heard nothing. In the end, he pushed against the door, opened it, and went in. He saw the elder lying on his bed and said, Your blessing, elder, how are you? I've come to see you. The elder, very upset, replied, You blessed man, it would have been better if you hadn't come, because as soon as you came in, you scared off the holy angel who was looking after me. That is why I didn't open the door for you. Don't come again, my blessed friend, because you scare away the holy angel. 
The brother left to go to his kali, and the elder remained lying on the boards of his bed, completely abandoned by men, but by abandoning himself into the hands of God, he had been counted worthy of being attended to by, the, by angels. At about the same time and place, though a bit higher up, at the skeet of St. Basil, there also lived Elder Theophylactos, who was very devout and a great struggler. Everyone acknowledged his sanctity because as much as he tried to hide it, it was impossible to keep his experiences concealed. The fathers often saw him in a state of spiritual theoria. He had two disciples, Father Arsenios and Father Pamphilos. As I have already said, Father Theophylactos was a great fighter for Christ, but he also had great reverence and contrition, and therefore found it difficult to pray along with other people. To avoid the others hearing his sobs and seeing his tears, which he was unable to withhold, he usually left at the time of the service and went out onto the rocks or into the caves and returned in the morning. He lived a very spiritual life but worked inconspicuously at his virtues because he had great humbleness. Once on a winter's night, when he had again gone out onto the rocks to pray the service, it suddenly started to snow. The fathers were worried when they did not see the elder in the morning and went out onto the mountain to check if he had been snowed in. While they were looking, they saw something black on a rock and went towards it. They were terribly upset when they saw their elder entirely motionless because they thought that he had frozen to death. When they reached out to shake him, they felt his body burning and saw that the snow all around him had been melted by his fervent prayer. It was only by being shaken that the elder had come out of the state of spiritual theoria he had been in, or rather that his noose had returned from paradise to the paravoli of the Panihia. The fathers of the desert acknowledged Elder Theophylactos as a neptic father and held him in high reverence. Footnote, neptic means one who cultivates vigilance and spiritual sobriety. Back to the text. The hostile demons, however, envied him. Since he had become a friend of the angels and had been caught up into heaven, they tried by every means at their disposal to distract him during his prayer when he was caught up in theoria, but they could never manage it. In fact, once when he was in a state of theoria at the skeet of St. Basil, the demons physically transported him to the skeet of Capsocalivia in order to distract him, but still failed. The elders of that area also said that Elder Theophylactos was very friendly even with wild animals, which sensed his love for them and would come to his Calivi when they were in need. In fact, a deer which had broken its leg had gone to the elders' Cali and bleated in distress, stretching out its broken little leg to the elder. He brought it some dry rusk to eat while he prepared two pieces of wood to make splints for the leg, and then he said to the deer, Be on your way now and come back in a week so I can have a look at it. The good elder had communicated with the animal just the way a doctor does with a human who is in pain because he had become a man of God. May his blessing and that of all our righteous fathers be upon us. Through the prayers of our righteous Athenite fathers and the Panihia, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us. Amen. Angel of the Eighth Age Footnote, the Eighth Age is the age to come. 
return to the text. Father Benjamin from Katanakia had been very devout ever since he was a layman because his family had been one of Christian principles. The young man's exceeding love for Christ made him leave his parents, homeland, and profession. He had been a police officer, as well as the worldly joys, and come to the Paravalia, the Panagia, on the Holy Mountain, to enlist as a volunteer in the angelic ranks of the monks. At first he went to live with Elder Kalinikos, the Hesychast. The discerning Elder Kalinikos realized as soon as he saw him that the youth was full of zeal, but also detected his sickly body. For that reason he told him about his own way of life, so that he would go somewhere else to settle. My child, I eat only fifty drams of rusks with some water once a day after the ninth hour. If you can manage that, stay. Otherwise, go somewhere else. Since the young man was in a pre-tuberculosis state and his health would not permit such strict asceticism, he went to Elder Pacomius in the Calivi of Action Estin. There he became a monk, was given the name Benjamin, and with Philodimo, struggled for many years. He was a great spiritual struggler despite his faltering health. Every night, a vigil, and during the day, he would always have in his hand either his handiwork or a patristic book. The Jesus prayer was constantly on his lips until the end of his life when his angelic soul flew up to heaven. Just at the time when his soul was ascending to heaven, a fool for Christ was outside the holy monastery of Karatia near Athens, keeping an eye on the sheepfolds, and he shouted loudly, Oh, oh, what have we lost? He is gone, he is gone. Just now Benjamin from Katanakia has died, and his soul went to Christ. And Christ ordered the angels to place a red ribbon on Benjamin's forehead with the words Angel of the Eighth Age on it. The Return to God from Earth to Heaven the good Lord created angels, but some of them became demons due to their pride. Afterwards, God created man to make up for the fallen angels and left the demons free to a certain extent and for a certain time in order to help us through their wickedness, so that in other words, we are tested here on earth and pass into the heavenly eternal life. As long as you are alive, you have the right to take spiritual examinations. There are no re-examinations. Let us therefore struggle to obtain at least the spiritual passing mark and enter paradise. Amen. People who struggle spiritually are fighting against the devil, the noetic enemy, and so it follows that they will be fought against by him too. Those who defeat the noetic enemy will be crowned by Christ. Experience is acquired through the fire of the demons against which the soldier of Christ stands during the spiritual battle. Before the battle begins, the enemy launches the bombardment with thoughts. The Jesus prayer is the heaviest weapon against the thoughts of the enemy. The spiritual progress of a person engaged in the struggle will not depend on how good the spiritual father is, but on the good thoughts of the disciple. The disciple who allows himself a wicked thought about his elder and withdraws his confidence in him, collapses all by himself, just as a dome will collapse if you remove the central stone, the keystone. To cleanse the mind and the heart, you must neither admit wicked thoughts, nor think wickedly. You should act simply and humbly, 
and struggle in a philotimo-filled way. For those engaged in the struggle to preserve their mental and bodily purity, pure thoughts have greater spiritual power than any other ascetic practice, fasting, vigil, and so on. When there is no pride, the natural struggle of the flesh subsides through fasting, vigil, and prayer. When a wicked thought conspires to act with the carnal old self, it does double damage to the soul, just as when the devil conspires to act with people, he does double damage to the world. All blasphemous thoughts come from the devil, not from human beings. It is usually sensitive people that the devil torments with blasphemous thoughts in order to distress them and bring them to despair. Blasphemous thoughts are like airplanes with their noise that annoys us against our will in which we are also powerless to stop. The heavy anti-aircraft battery is psalmody because it is both prayer to Christ and disdain for the devil. At the beginning of the spiritual life, the struggler casts out wicked thoughts through spiritual reading, unceasing prayer, and philotimo-filled asceticism. It is after this that good thoughts come. Later on, even the good thoughts stop and you feel an emptying, and then divine enlightenment comes to you. People of God know what evil is, but the evil one does not know people's good thoughts. The greatest sickness of our age is the vain thoughts of worldly people which bring on anxiety. The cure, together with spiritual serenity and also with eternity, is imparted only by Christ, provided you repent and turn to Him. A great sinner has much by which to be humbled, and great humbleness receives divine grace, provided that in the future you avoid the occasions and causes of sin in order to preserve it. The desert is a great help in eradicating the passions of the soul because even weeds do not thrive in the arid wilderness, while in the marshlands they grow like reeds. Do not admire those who draw near the moon, but rather those who avoid the worldly frame of mind and draw near God and rejoice. People who distance themselves from God cannot find solace in their souls, neither in this fleeting life nor in eternity. For whoever does not believe in God and in the future eternal life remains inconsolable in this life and also condemns his soul eternally. The more people distance themselves from the natural simple, simple life and move towards luxury, the more they increase humanity's anxiety. And the more worldly civility proliferates, the more the simplicity, the joy, and the natural human smile are lost from sight. God is infinite noose, and man through his noose is both related to God and also approaches him. God is infinite love, and man with a purified heart experiences God. God is simple, and man believes with simplicity and struggles humbly and in a philotimo-filled way and experiences the mysteries of God. The years go by and people grow old. Do not just sit at the crossroads. Choose a cross to match your philotimo. Take one of the two paths of our church and follow Christ to the crucifixion if you want to rejoice in the resurrection. People's crosses are just little crosses that help us towards the salvation of our souls, while the cross of Christ was very heavy because he did not use his divine power for himself. The best medicine for every trial of ours is the greater trials suffered by our fellow men if we can only call them to mind.
Christ is sweet, and if you lay the bitterness of your pain on him, the bitterness is transformed into sweet syrup. Do you want your prayer to become a prayer of the heart so that it will be welcome to God? Then make the pain of your fellow men your own. Even just a sigh from the heart on behalf of your neighbor will have positive results. The divine information of welcomed prayer is the divine consolation you feel after praying. Peaceful nighttime prayer is of great assistance with its calmness and is also more efficacious for our spiritual development, just as the silent nighttime rain is of great benefit to growing plants. Sleep after sunset is of great benefit to the body, but keeping vigil with devout prayer after sunset also greatly helps the soul. Use your combaschini all the time until your spiritual oil warms up and the spiritual engine starts so that the heart works at the prayer by itself. You'll receive divine aid in direct proportion to the sacrifice and prayer you undertake for yourself or your fellow men. Having trust in God for things which are not humanly possible is a mystical continuous prayer with positive results. Whoever trusts in God sows glorification and receives divine joy and eternal blessing. Whoever sows misery reaps misery and stores up anxiety. The sweet life is not experienced by those who enjoy it in a worldly way, but rather by those who live spiritually and accept bitter things with joy, like healing herbs for the soul's health and eat only for the upkeep of their body. If your neighbor is hungry, give him your food. If there are not any hungry people, give it to hungry animals, because your soul will benefit from fasting for paradise, whereas the poor animals do not go to paradise. On the other hand, the good thing for them is that they do not go to hell either. The joy you feel when you receive a material blessing is human joy, but the joy you feel when you give is divine. Divine joy comes with giving. The spiritual alteration granted to the soul along with the rejoicing of the heart, even from a small act of charity or kindness to fellow men, cannot be given by the greatest cardiologist, even if you offer him a sackful of dollars. Whoever tires himself for his neighbor out of pure love will find rest in tiredness, but he who loves his own self and is lazy will tire himself just by sitting. The hard-working person on whichever path he is, whether a monk or a layman, will spiritually prosper because he will labor with philotimo. However, the person who does not cultivate the philotimo that God has given him will not prosper in either the worldly life or the monastic life. The poor animals have better manners than insensitive people because they are purchased by both soft-hearted and hard-hearted people and obey, regardless. They also work hard and show patience without any complaint or reward. Therefore, they have surpassed us in patience and obedience, and in that they are without property. If you humbly carry the load of your neighbor's fault, your love is greater than that of someone who carries the heavy bag of his or her traveling companion. Accept injustice as a great blessing because you gain a heavenly blessing from it. However, do not aim to be unjustly treated, because doing so reveals malevolent inconsideration. When someone wrongs you, do not say, May God deal with him, because then you curse with politeness.
Forgive the person who genuinely asks for your forgiveness, and each time he errs, forgive him with goodness, love him, and keep him close. Forgive the cunning person who supposedly asks you forgiveness in order to attain his own ends and constantly entangles you in his affairs, which also spiritually harm other people. Forgive him seventy-seven times all at once, and thereafter love him from a distance and pray for him. Accept injustice with joy so long as it does not spiritually harm you. The more spiritual a person is, the fewer rights he has in this life, because the rights of the righteous are retained by Christ in the heavenly life. The more your body toils for Christ, the more your soul rejoices close to Him. Moreover, your offering to your fellow men is more effective because it is spiritual. The compassionate man puts himself in the position of the wounded person, prays for him, comforts him, and is himself rewarded by Christ with divine consolation in proportion to his own pain. The heartless man, however, seeks to take someone else's position. When he occupies it, he is himself occupied by anxiety and lives in a measure of hell from this life. Within our love for our neighbor is concealed our great love for Christ. Within our devotion to our Paniya and the saints is concealed our great devotion again for Christ, the triune God. The holy angels praise God unceasingly in winged devotion. Holy, holy. In order for man to fly like an angel, he has to put all the passions of his soul to flight and send his material goods to the poor. For where there is material wealth, there is spiritual poverty. Even a robber has compassion for and helps a poor man, while the same robber makes a rich man poor in a nasty way. It is good for people to become voluntarily poor through the gospel of Christ in order to inherit his heavenly kingdom. Since the heavenly life of human beings will be ever angelic, some philotomo-filled younger people make a start from this life by becoming monks and living in voluntary poverty, chastity, and obedience. There is only one angelic schema for both monks and nuns. There is neither male nor female. Footnote. Reference to Galatians 3.28. Return to the text. For the monastic mentality to develop in our hearts, our worldly mentality must first die and become compost. For the passions to die, we have to think of death, the judgment day, and also suffer out of Philotimo for Christ, who suffered many things, even death in order to redeem us. It is good for a monk to die in his place of repentance, but in repentance. If you recognize the great value of the angelic schema, you will not seek other ranks and titles. If you become a proper monk, you will rejoice like an angel on earth and in heaven. Otherwise, worldly people will mock you and the angels will be saddened. A monk who lives in a worldly way is tormented and unsuccessful in his life. This will also be a problem for Christ. With whom should he place him, the monks or the worldly people? A monk is light, a lighthouse on the rocks, not a lantern for the world. When a monk does not see people for the sake of Christ, he then sees many people and helps in a divine way by praying for things that would be humanly impossible. Monks are the radio operators of our church 
And this is why they withdraw from worldly clamor in order to have a good connection with Christ through prayer and be able to help. If a monk proudly compares himself to the laity, then he will fall and become a layman. If he humbly seeks the mercy of God, struggles and sees all people as good and saintly, then he is imitating the saints. In order for your soul to be spiritually resurrected, you must be crucified. The passions of the soul must die, particularly egoism, the anarchic child of pride, which hinders divine grace and gives people a right old beating. If a monk wants to prosper spiritually, he must abandon logic, humble himself, and work with his heart. If a nun wants to prosper, she must abandon jealousy, become spiritually manly, and give precedence to logic in order to put a break on her heart. Do not consider spiritual work on your own self to be a waste of time because it is a spiritual prerequisite for you and positive assistance to your fellow men. Be very careful not to make a name for yourself because then your name will become the greatest enemy of your quietude. A monk should be even more careful not to become known for his meticulous spiritual life because then all his labors are lost to worldly praises. Conversely, when you repent, of a careless life, then you pay off a sin or two, since you have fallen in the esteem of people. By making your good acts known and being proud of them, they are lost. You have labored in vain and fallen into sin. A monk who thinks in worldly terms seems to have lost his way. Although he started out to get, it, to, get to Christ, his soul is going into the world. Monks who are always involved with superfluous structures and worldly embellishments reveal that they are earthly, bricks and mud, and completely without divine noose. Simple structures and humble objects noetically transport monks to the caves and unadorned hermitages of our Holy Fathers, and in this way the monks are spiritually benefited. Worldly objects, however, recall the world and make the monks worldly in their souls. The Athenite saints were people like us. Athos was a wild mountain, like other mountains. However, through their Philotimo-filled struggle, our fathers sanctified both themselves and the mountain, which became known as the Holy Mountain. And yet today, we both admire ourselves and are admired as Athenites. Our Holy Fathers sanctified the desert and transformed it into a spiritual commonwealth. We, unfortunately, have transformed it into a worldly commonwealth. In monasticism, every worldly sense of orderliness is likewise a great spiritual disorderliness. Do not try, brother, to adapt the tranquil desert to your restless worldly self, but respect the desert so that with its tranquility it will help you to become deserted by your passions and graced by Christ. If you want to become a hesychast and remain in quietude, first with good thoughts acquire your own inner quietude within the outer disquietude. A novice who cuts himself off from the brotherhood in order to become a hesychast is like an unripe fig which is picked from the tree but still oozes milk. It seems he still has need of milk. In the old days when there were more elders, the younger monks progressed spiritually. In our own days when most of us are simply elderly, what will the young ones do? 
In the old days, our fathers had a fighting spirit. They fasted a great deal and preferred their food watery, plainly boiled, which is why they had both sanctity and bodily health. In our own times, as we avoid both asceticism and plainly boiled food, we become watery ourselves. Even the hen, if it did not keep digging for food, instead got rid of its fat, would fly, and then the hawk would not catch it. When you carry a bag around, you cannot wait to put it down. How much more so if you constantly carry around extra weight, which increases with gluttony and is harmful to the health. An ascetic man sees his skeletal body as a friend of his soul that helps him sanctify the soul. A well-fed man, however, makes his body the enemy of his soul and sets them at odds. The evil one will then seek an opportunity to bombard him with obscene thoughts. After a fast, bread is sweet. After a vigil, sleep is sweet. And after labor, even a bare stone is more restful than an armchair. The more you avoid human consolation, the more divine consolation draws near you. If people lived simply in accordance with the gospel and close to Christ, they would be sweetened spiritually by him and not be strangled by worldly anxiety, which embitters them with psychiatric drugs until they become vegetables. Now that conveniences have exceeded all bounds, they have become inconveniences. Machines have multiplied, distractions have multiplied, even man has been made into a machine. In fact, these days, machines and iron are in command of men, which is why their hearts have become steely. Worldly progress, along with its sinful freedom, has brought about this state of spiritual slavery. Spiritual submission to the will of God is freedom for the soul, and spiritual supervision brings about divine surety. The responsibility of the spiritual father depends on the degree of his disciple's obedience. The novice is like a blank tape recorder set. The elder will be held responsible. Obedience does not mean the outward obedience the disciple practices, but rather that his frame of mind is gladly al aligned to the spirit of his elder. If you retain your own will, you cast out the will of God and hinder divine grace. Simple, humble people have no will of their own and no egoism. They receive divine enlightenment. Since they also accept advice humbly, they become philosophers as well. In order to be under obedience to someone, you have to either revere him or be afraid of him. Obedience out of reverence is spiritual, whereas that out of fear is military discipline. If each one of us does not improve himself so that goodness increases, how will goodness ever prevail in a good way? Do not egoistically force yourself beyond your strength and generate anxiety. Christ is a loving father, not a tyrant. Christ rejoices over our philotimo-filled struggle. If we cannot struggle much, or even not at all, at least we ought to humbly recognize this and ask for God's mercy. If this recognition were not for our own benefit, then Christ would not ask it from us. If you want to hear the divine message of the word, logos, of God, and undergo a change, you have to turn the dial to the same frequency that Christ is transmitting on through the Holy Gospel and devoutly apply His divine commandments. 
Devotion is one thing, piety is another, just as Eastern Orthodox devotion differs from Western European piety. Devotion has divine grace, while piety has a human mind. These days when there is so much confusion in the brain, we have abandoned patristic books and taken up magazines, which confuse people even more. Most of us, experienced or inexperienced, have abandoned the Holy Gospel and are rushing to grasp the rudder, which is why the sacred vessel, our church, is being tossed by the waves. Footnote. The rudder is a compilation of the texts of Orthodox canon law by St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. Return to the text. It is a good thing for people to read spiritual books, but it is even better to apply them by living spiritually. A correct person is not one who says all the right things, but one who also lives properly in accordance with the gospel. In the past, people had values in their lives, sincerity, integrity, and so on. It was the material goods that were inexpensive then. Today, unfortunately, it is our values that have gotten away from us while material goods have become expensive. In the old days, Christians would make the sign of the cross before doing anything and pray a great deal before tackling an important matter. These days, unfortunately, most of us not only fail to pray about important matters, but we do not even think about them, which is how other people end up praying for our thought, paying for our thoughtlessness. Every good idea that enters the human mind is from above, from God. The only thing that is ours is the mucus that runs from our noses when we have a cold. Be you a mirror or the lid of a tin can, you will not shine if the sun's rays do not fall on you. Do not be distressed if you have inherited faults, and do not boast if you have inherited virtues, because God will examine the work you did on the old man within you. If a mild temperament helps in achieving spiritual progress, then an angry temperament helps even more so, provided the power of the anger is directed against evil, the passions of the soul. Just as the carving of a wooden icon requires infinite work when it is done with a magnifying glass, so does the human soul also require infinite work until the eyes of the soul are cleansed and become telescopes. If on occasion you cannot find anyone so that you can spiritually see the reflection of your own self, leave yourself for a while and look at yourself from a distance as if you were another person and you will find lots of faults. If you do not understand the old man within you in order to be naturally humbled, you will be able to be in a state of humility such that divine grace will linger. Do not seek to become an elder because even the thought of it is a failure nor should you want to act like an elder if you have not first been a disciple. If you have become a captain by yourself without having first been a deck boy, then at least seek the advice of the navigators so that you and your crew do not sink, namely, so that you do not mess things up. If you aim for distinction on your own, you will also struggle alone for your entire life. If you are promoted by others, people will be your supporters. And if you are informed by God, God will be your supporter. If it happens that one of us elders is a little spiritual, spiritually cross-eyed, then we should not ask blind obedience of our monks, lest we all fall over the cliff together, as it is written, 
And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Do not hurry into a monastery before you have untangled yourself from your worldly entanglements, if you want to be woven smoothly into the brotherhood. Before you leave the world, make a heartfelt prayer to Christ and entrust your parents and siblings to God. Do not think of them at all after that, for then Christ will be obliged to help them. A novice who thinks of his parents and siblings hinders divine help. If he thinks a lot about the world, it means that he has very quickly forgotten what he went through to detach himself from the world. If you cannot detach yourself from the world, at least struggle to uproot the worldly mentality from within you. It is difficult for the world to be uprooted from within us if we do not first uproot ourselves from the world and its rationalizations. It is difficult for people to acquire divine love unless they rid themselves of their love for their small family in order to enter our large family, the one of Adam, God's family. A novice should not inhale a worldly frame of mind at the beginning of his monastic life because then from the outset he will continually sputter like a candle with a wet wick. A young monk who is spirited and egoistical should not be humbled too sharply by his elder because then he will send out offshoots like a young tree which is full of sap when it has been pruned too severely. While your spiritual tree is still small and its branches low, accept the spiritual enclosure and the binding of restrictions with joy so that you will not be cut down by the goats and made useless. Be patient so that you can grow spiritually in order to nurture others with your fruit and cool them with your shade. A small tree is gently tied with green stalks, not with wire, otherwise its bark will be injured and it will become stunted. Thus restrictions on a novice should be gentle too and applied with goodness so that he will not be spiritually stunted. A spiritual child should not give spiritual rights to anyone other than his elder, nor should he tell his innermost thoughts to worldly people and humble himself before them, because he will be harmed spiritually by people who do not understand the great virtue of humble-mindedness. The war against the flesh is not an impediment to a young person who wants to become a monk, just so long as he is not contemplating marriage. With a little asceticism, fasting, vigil, and prayer, the body submits to the spirit when there is a humble frame of mind, of course. At the same time, the young person also sets aside a heavenly reward from his struggle. Do not start out on the monastic road unless your heart is entirely your own, otherwise you will fail. A young person who gives his whole heart to Christ and entrusts himself to an experienced spiritual father easily divests himself of the old man within, just like a new potato which is easily peeled. But an older person, unless he is very simple and humble, is like an old potato that is difficult to peel. Even if it is boiled, you still have to peel it while it is hot. The cleanest angelic schema is the one that was received at an early age, even if it has become a little dusty over the years, rather than that of an elderly monk who receives it in his last moments, clean and iron from the tailor, and goes straight to the grave in it. The greatest memorial service for both the people in the world and our ancestors is our spiritual progress, because then they are entitled to divine help. This is apart from our prayer, which is bold before God, and the joy which our grandparents feel over us, their pride and joy.
but if we lead a bad life, they suffer threefold. The foremost and best of parents who have many children is the one who has been reborn spiritually and assists in the spiritual rebirth of children in order to secure their souls in paradise. If all who were born handicapped or who became handicapped through their own or someone else's carelessness do not complain but humbly glorify God and live close to Him, God will rank them with the confessors of our faith. The good Lord is full of philotimo and is moved even by our most meager offering. We people eat the sweet honey produced by the bees, but to God we offer the wax that has been discarded by the bees, and still He rejoices over our offering. Although God feeds the trees with garbage and manure, and they make beautiful aromatic fruit for us, and although He offers us His blessings in abundance, we wretched people with our ingratitude, nourished as we are with these beautiful fruits which then become our own manure, unfortunately remain as proud as ever. All people receive the rich blessings of God, but only a few thank God and are gratefully and joyfully close to Christ. There are many people who have everything, but who are nonetheless sorrowful because Christ is missing from their lives. The Nativity of the Theotoko, September 8, 1980. The Kulamusian Kali of the Panaguda, the Holy Mountain, Monk Paisios. The end and glory to God. Amen.